You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. You're now tuned into the Pod Awful channel. Pod Awful. Bi-quarterly women's social club. Dazed and convicted. Blue party radio. Show King. The devil's advocate. The projection booth. Awful flips. Pod Awful. Support for the Projection Booth Podcast comes from Stitcher Smart Radio. Now podcast listeners can access the latest episodes of the Projection Booth and thousands of other podcasts on the go without downloading or syncing. Stitcher instantly delivers episodes of your favorite shows to your mobile phone. Stitcher Smart Radio can be found in the iPhone and Android app stores or on the web at stitcher.com slash booth. They spoke of it first in whispers. Then it took the media by storm. Password. Scrooge. So be it. Bob Guccione and Penthouse Films International present Caligula. If only all Rome had just one neck. treacherous the recreation of power gone mad in all its insane dimension Caligula take my horse to his own bed the emperor who devoured Rome For Lust, a film that tells the truth as no film ever dared. Malcolm McDowell, Teresa Ann Savoy, Helen Moran, Peter O'Toole, John Gielgud, in the most controversial film ever made. Caligula, no rumor can match the reality. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Rob St. Mary, and joining me is Mr. Mike White. You know what? Rob asked me at the end of the day, Caligula would have blushed. Oh, and few people, I think, would blush as uh, as lovely as our guest host this week, film writer Maitland McDonough. Thank you so much. This week we're looking at the 1979 film Caligula, a biopic about one of the most wicked rulers of Rome. It was directed by Tinto Brass until he took his name off it. It was written by Gore Vidal until he took his name off it. And it was proudly produced by Bob Guccione of Penthouse Magazine, who didn't take his name off it. Caligula tells the story of Gaius Germanus Caesar also known as Caligula, Latin for Little Boots, with Malcolm McDowell in the title role. The film features well-known and respected British actors such as Sir John Gielgud, Peter O'Toole, Helen Mirren, just to name a few, as well as a swath of penthouse pets. 
Caligula is a film that for over the last 30 years plus has been rather notorious not only for what's on the screen, but what went on behind the scenes. So Maitland, as our guest, when was the first time you saw Caligula and what did you think? I saw Caligula in 1980 at the Penthouse East, which was actually a renaming of a, a theater called the Translux East, but for the duration of Caligula's run, it was the Penthouse East. And uh, it was pretty stunning, I have to say. Stunning is one of those words that can mean really fabulous and really horrifying. And it was both. So I wanted to see it again, actually. Nobody would go with me, by the way. Nobody. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. What about about you, Mr. White? Well, kind of like The Devils, this is one of those films that I had heard that there were so many different cuts of out there that I was kind of waiting for someone to take me by the hand and lead me into the world of Caligula and tell me which version I should have seen. I didn't have such a guide, so I kind of just started with the one that was available on Netflix streaming of all places a few months ago. And since then, I've watched a few different versions and have read so much about it that I feel like I've seen other versions. And my mind is just kind of a big muddle of Caligula stuff right now. I can understand that. There is a lot to ingest and sort of analyze when it comes to the various cuts of this film. As for me, uh, I think part of what made me want to put this on the show was I got this book called Dirty, Dirty, Dirty that um, I picked up several years ago and I read. And it's about the three – basically the three main men of four uh, possibly, including uh, Al Goldstein. But it focuses mostly on Hugh Hefner. Bob Guccione and Larry Flint and the whole section on Guccione, not reading up so much on him, not knowing so much about him. A lot of his section in that book was about all of the bizarreness around Caligula and the lawsuits and stuff like that. And I just thought it was fascinating. So I bought the Blu-ray and I watched it and I was like, this is beyond what I expected because there are, it's one of those films that I think for me was in sort of lore. Like people would talk about it and say, Oh, you know, there's this and that, and there's this and that. And like, it's always like way worse than you expect when people talk up a film that is either like really bad or has really like graphic content or something like that. And it's not to say that it's children's fair, but uh, it didn't quite push me over the edge as much as I thought because I don't know, maybe I'm I'm jaded now, but I thought that um, there's a lot of stuff in there, but it's at times it's kind of poorly executed, and I think the editing and the fact that it was taken away from the director kind of uh, adds to that. But there are certain aspects of it that I really like, and that's why I'm glad to have you both uh, to talk about it. Well, you know what's funny is it seems to me that the default way people who have seen it only recently talk about it is that like half of it is really, really dull and the other half is really, really gross or really, really amazingly transgressive. But I never really got the really dull part. I don't think there's any part of Caligula that's dull. As I was watching it again with the wife yesterday, she's like, you know, the sex is good, but I cut out all the rest of this stuff. So maybe she's one of those, I think it's dull kind of people. That kind of sounds like it. Which is funny because I actually find the sex in it not very sexy. No, me neither. This, you know, we've talked a lot lately about these kind of like hybrid films. You know, we talked about Water Power a few weeks ago and Zoom in Sex Apartments. And it's just like those films 
we're kind of blending like murder mysteries or um, really dark ideas with a little bit of sex. And this is very much the same thing. And for me, the sex in both of those films didn't do anything for me. And same thing with Caligula. It's just like, kind of like, would you get out of the way? I kind of want to see what the rest of this story is. I don't necessarily need to see this lesbian scene that was thrown in here or this other thing. It's just like, Continue on with the story, please. I would really like to know more about this. Well, far be it from us to agree with Bob Guccione, but his first criticism of the first cut he saw of Caligula was that it wasn't sexy. Uh, his solution was, of course, to go in after hours and shoot all that boring lesbian pet footage and stick that into it at the end. Um, so I'm not really sure he had the answer, but he actually did have the question, which is, how can I sell this as a sex film when it is so unbelievably unsexy? I mean, there's a lot of sex going on, but it's within a very particular context, which is the brutality of, of imperial Rome. And also, Cinto Brass, although a lot of people dismiss him as, you know, the big smutty guy from Italy, is somebody with very intensely held political opinions and ideas, and he saw Caligula primarily as a vehicle for expressing those ideas, which were not necessarily Gorbidal's ideas, which is another reason that there was a lot of um, difficulty on that film, let's say. Yeah, got some really strong personalities, three really strong personalities as far as what they see as far as the vision of this film between Guccione, Brass, and Vidal. And nobody's backing down, and everybody wants to have their own way. And I guess it's the guy with the checkbook who kind of gets his own way at the end. But while it was being shot, you know, Kinto Brass got his way because he just went ahead and did what he wanted, regardless of what Guccione said to him about the Russians he'd already seen. You know, Kinto Brass really did make his movie. Unfortunately, his movie is not that you're seeing in any cut of Caligula. And you really have to kind of feel sorry for um, Gore Vidal by this point, because this would be the second really bad uh, bastardization of his work within 10 years. I mean, we did Myra Breckenridge on the show, and that's one that, you know, was a horrible failure when it came out. And then this one, I'm sure, if you went back and read the original treatment of the original script of what he wrote, I'm willing to bet that there was a lot of parallels between Imperial Rome and America, and the idea... Unquestionably. Was, yeah, Especially when you get into Gore Vidal's political writings, he always was going, yeah, America is the new Rome, and here's, you know, we're just repeating the same old things again. And for him to possibly, I don't know, maybe use Caligula, it wouldn't be exactly a, a parallel, but you have to consider this was, he was writing this coming out of the Nixon era, and maybe he saw Nixon in some small way as, you know, this um, tyrannical or corrupt uh, head of state in much the same way. Which is basically also the way Tinto Brass saw him. So I think the big problem between Brass's vision and Vidal's was that I don't think that Brass is, is a big, clumsy vulgarian, but I think he will always go for the operatic way of saying something, whereas Vidal has that very patrician understatement quality. And that's you know, that's that's oil and water. Well, that's sort of the, I guess, legacy of Italian spectacle, you know. Absolutely. And and it's all over this film. 
<laughs> you know, you don't get you get a lot of it. And just put it that way. Whatever's in there, you get a lot of it. And there's so much of it that at times it's like we were saying it. It's kind of overpowering, and it kind of takes away from the um, what could have been the the great ideas and various things that are in there. One of my favorite anecdotes about the that there's a lot of everything in Caligula was that John Gielgud was supposed to have said on his first day on the set to Malcolm McDowell. I have never seen so much cock in my life. <laughs> Which is quite something, given that John Gielgud was quite interested in pursuing that. Uh, but apparently Caligula kind of blew his mind. I, I don't know what day he came on. Uh, maybe the day that the, the quarry stuff was being done, or the big naked run to the river, or... Uh, but he's not wrong. Dick, 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 dick. How many dicks is that? A lot. And that's another thing you can say for Tinto Brass, is that however crude some people find him, he's an equal opportunity Bulgarian when he's being vulgar. It's not just the girls who have to show off. Rob, I'm curious, which came first? We we were doing a whole month of, of Roman-themed films here. Which came first, doing a Roman-themed month or seeing Caligula and then kind of saying we, we can do four of these films? I think it was Caligula first, and then I thought, you know, we need to do this in either uh, July or August because both of those months, of course, were named after uh, the Caesars. So I thought, um, why not? Uh, because there are other films that we can talk about in terms of ancient Rome, and we will over the next uh, several weeks. Wow, even Gorvidal would approve of that timing. <laughs> this whole idea of the United States as Rome, it, it is an interesting one to examine. I'm kind of curious, Maitland, had, since you saw this one at the theater, I mean, the film kind of started production maybe when Ford was still in office, and by the time it comes out, I'm thinking Reagan's in office. I mean, we stick, skipped an entire presidency here, and a lot of things can change in four years. Did it feel a little dated? Not you know, other than it being set in Roman times, but was there kind of like, this is missing the mark because had it been released four years earlier, it would have been a little bit more punchy? I don't really think so, because first, Brass's take on it was actually not that it was about the American Republic. It was more that it was about the pure abuse of power, no matter what the political ideology behind it was. And yeah, it's not too hard to get behind. But also, there was just so much going on that was so wrong in so many ways that I think it, it you can't pin that movie really to any time except Imperial Rome. And of course, all we have of Imperial Rome is, it, you know, we have some writings, we have some ideas from movies. That's what most of us have is a lot of ideas from sword and sandal epics, from the big Hollywood, ancient Rome epics. Um, so it, it seems kind of removed in its specifics, I think, but not in its overall message that power power does corrupt. And the more power you have, the more corrupting its influence. Although, interestingly, Gore Vidal in some interview said what I think is one of the stupidest things I've ever, I have ever heard said about Caligula, the historical figure, uh, which was the reason he wanted to do this film, write this screenplay, was that he wanted to talk about what could happen to a perfectly ordinary young man when he is suddenly handed enormous power, literally the power of life and death over people. The idea that Caligula was ever an ordinary young man is completely misguided because he was part of very wealthy, aristocratic, politically connected family. So he grew up watching his grandfather kill his father, 
one of his brothers, maybe two, actually, I don't remember. Pretty much anybody that Tiberius felt was a threat to him at any time had them murdered. That's the atmosphere Caligula grew up in. So it's not hard to see that that was the attitude he brought when he came to power. And that's funny that you talk about that in reference to Gore Vidal, because Gore Vidal himself was not some average guy. He was also connected to political power in America. His grandfather, who he actually assisted on the floor of the Senate, was a blind senator from Oklahoma. And he is, of course, uh, in the family of Al Gore and that family. So there's a lot of political and uh, cultural connections when we talk about Gore Vidal. I mean, he was raised, I would say, in an aristocratic class in America. No question. And that's why I found that statement so odd from him, because I also know that when he undertook any historical project, he did his research. He has to have realized. I, I, I just I couldn't figure out where he was coming from. Should we get into the plot a little bit? Sure. I have decided that probably what would make sense is to run down what's called the uncensored cut. And then we can talk about some of the other different changes and things like that. But the uncensored cut is the two-hour, 36-minute version. I feel like we're kind of talking like the devils. Like there's a lot of parallels, I think, and, and Mike, you were apt to bring it up with this film and sort of how we handled the devils a few months back. And sort of there's these different things with it. And then I also think uh, talking about the design and things like that, we're, we're, we might see some parallels there as well. So the film opens, the title card, you see Pagan Rome. Uh, 37 to 41 AD, and then there's the quote from the Bible from the Gospel of Mark, and it's 836. It says, what is the benefit of man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? So we're given this sort of philosophical statement on the person that we're going to meet and we're going to pal around with for the next two hours and 36 minutes. And Although, if I may break in here for one second, I find a quote from the Christian Bible incredibly not relevant to anything that you that you can say about Caligula, you know, different, different, whole different ethos. Oh, completely. And what's funny about the quote is when I thought about it back after I watched, you know, at least two versions of this film is I'm having some difficulty with, with Guccione at times who edited this film going, well, does he want us to root for Caligula or does he want us to root against Caligula? And putting that quote on the front seems like he wants us to root against him, although there's all this revelry that he wants us to have with the character. Mm-hmm. Well, and also, as he's, he, he himself has said, you know, Brass was always an anarchist at heart. He felt that all highly structured political institutions were inherently corrupt and oppressive. And so he probably, I mean, he did have some sympathy with, uh, with Caligula as an iconoclast. So the first scene we get in here where there's anyone is Caligula and this woman and they're running around and there's sort of this forest pasture land. There's sheep. I don't know if that's supposed to be symbolic. And they're sort of rolling around. And, and we don't know at the time, though, who he's rolling around with because in another version of this, this scene comes in about an hour in. And it's longer. But that's actually his sister. We don't know that at the time, Drusilla. And then after they're sort of like done pawing around on each other, it cuts. And then we get this VO of of Malcolm McDowell as Caligula saying, I have existed from the morning of the world, and I shall exist until the last star falls from the heavens. Although I have taken the form of Caius Caligula, I am all men as I am no man, and so I am a god. Opening credits with the bloody coin image and the Prokiev music from Romeo and Juliet and 
this is setting the stage for us to uh, to, to get into the film. What an entrance. <laughs> what an entrance, I'm telling you. And not only that, but if you're keeping count at home, um, in this version of the film, there's about – and I'm going to put this nicely. Uh, there's like basically two extended shots at least that go on quite a while of upskirts of women in the first five minutes. If you're into that, there you go. You get nice, beautiful view of um, of the ladies from Down Under. So again, to be fair to Tinto Brass, you get a lot of upskirt shots for the guys too. So. Which eventually we get to a point where there's all these naked slaves breaking rocks as Caligula heads off to meet uh, Tiberius and uh, Nerva, who's played by John Gielgud. But in this scene, right after the credits, he is with, I believe it's with Drusilla, and they're talking about um, sort of like, you know, here's what's going on. I just got this message. I got to go, I got to go see my, I guess it's his grandfather. Now, it's my understanding that in Roman history, Caligula was adopted by Tiberius after Germanicus, who was a general, which is Caligula's father, was killed in battle and basically raised him and that's what the connection is. They're not really related, but they're he's sort of like, I guess, the adopted son. And again, not really a good paternal model. No, definitely not. No, because he, uh, when we get to meet Tiberius, played by Peter O'Toole, uh, he's all covered in lesions. We get the feeling that he's probably insane from syphilis. Uh, there's this whole scene where he's talking to Caligula about... Um, you know, sexuality, but in sort of almost the same line concept of uh, what's in Spartacus. Do you eat oysters? When I have the master. Do you eat snails? No, master. Do you consider the eating of oysters to be moral and the eating of snails to be immoral? No, master. Of course not. It's all a matter of taste, isn't it? Yes, Master. And taste is not the same as appetite, and therefore not a question of morals, is it? Hmm. It could be argued so, Master. My robe, Antoninus. Uh, Tiberius says, You prefer nymphs to satyrs? I like both, Lord. One needs both. Yes. To keep healthy. Variety being the spice of life. He definitely seems to have had his fair share, and there are quite a few nymphs and satyrs just kind of hanging around. Well, I, I guess if you're a Caesar, you're kind of a rock star in this era. And of course, any rock star needs to have a pool. So uh, Tiberius is having this massive pool party with his little fishies when Caligula shows up. This... I, I feel really dumb when I watch this movie. This movie, sometimes it kind of defies me to pay attention to it. It's like, it feels like this section, this whole 45 minutes of Tiberius and Caligula, it feels like it, it just kind of goes on. And if, if does he go back to his house and then come back? It, it just feels like this kind of almost like this dream logic to this section in particular, because it's just like nothing really kind of connects for me. And even though I've watched this so many times, I still feel like now exactly how is this? And I know the beginning is one of the most highly 
kind of edited parts when it comes to you were mentioning the scene in the forest and when does that come in and there's this whole thing with Caligula having a beard and in some places he doesn't have a beard and then in others he does even though the whole shaving of the beard is supposed to be this big ritual so when you see non-bearded shots before he has a beard then you know that something is up but it's just this whole part is just so confusing for me it feels like it could have been done in about 10 minutes but it just goes on for so long but then you couldn't show all that stuff uh the phallic walk and and the the minnows who are creepy and you know they they were all legally of age but were cast specifically because they looked so young and um and it's all it's kind of disturbing though i should also say it's no more disturbing than a lot of scenes in satiricon and hey that's a fellini movie and hey we're covering that in just a couple weeks oh well there you go <laughs> there you go. Well, where it really, you know, it's interesting, Maitland, that you brought up uh, operatic style. And I think really where we start to see this sort of like opera staging, because it really feels stage bound, is in the next section, not in the pool. But they go to this like, I, I want to say it's like a second level or it's a grotto or something. And it's all like bathed in red light. And mm-hmm. there's like the guy like... Uh, Tiberius says to Caligula, do you think this guy's been drinking? Do you think he's been drinking wine? Go get him more wine. And then they like just load this guy up with wine. They like force feed him basically and then they cut him open and then there's all this like sex in the background. But the way it's staged – it, it almost seems like an opera set and then everything is sort of like the camera's moving left to right and they're just sort of walking through and they're having these conversations while in the background the only people are having sex or there's you know various weird imagery or things like that which in a lot of ways does uh, remind me of satiricon but i have this feeling with the staging and the lighting and the red and all that it's almost like uh like brass or whatever's trying to like move us through like a, a level in Dante's Inferno or something. And there are endless levels in in Tinto Brass's Caligula Inferno, no question. We get through this, and um, the character played. That, now I feel bad for John Gielgud in here. Like I think Peter O'Toole has a lot to do. Like Mike, you said, almost to an extreme, he has too much to do. Like he's just talking, and you're just kind of having trouble following this stuff. But John Gielgud to me feels like. Maybe some of his stuff ended up on the cutting room floor because his his character shows up, he does a few things, and then there's this scene where he kills himself. And there, there's one thing that I like about this where he's sort of lying in this pool. It almost looks like a fish tank, and you can see him sort of bleed out. And Malcolm McDowell's Caligula is over there to him, and he's like, what's going on? Tell me what's happening. And he's like this little kid who's just asking him all these questions as he bleeds out. Nova, what's it like? Warm, no pain. Just drifting away. Do you see her? Who? The goddess, Isis. So you're one of those who believe... Do you see her? No. Are you sure? You're almost dead. What's it like? What's happening to you now? Nothing. You're lying. You can see her. I know you can. What is she like? No. Nothing at all. Just sleep. I don't know why I like that scene for some reason. I think it's it's Malcolm McDowell, but I, I feel that his character, like John Gilgood's character, 
is missing something. Like, like he was supposed to be there for a reason, and it almost seemed like you could have cut him out of the entire film and you wouldn't have missed anything. Yeah, completely. And, and the one thing I don't get is why is – it seems like Caligula is kind of obsessed with Egyptians because he mentions Egyptians a few times. And I know there's the whole Roman-Egyptian thing and all this kind of stuff, but it seems like he's really into Egyptians, maybe because they can marry their sisters or something. But he keeps talking about ISIS and I'm like, well, why are you concerned about ISIS? Isn't that an Egyptian god rather than a Roman god? So it's just kind of a felt a little weird to me with that. Maybe I, I don't know if Romans were kind of magpies when it came to their gods. Hard to say because I don't have a strong enough historical background to say for certain. But I, I do know that a lot of Roman emperors, particularly, did have a thing about Egypt. So, and I don't know why, really. I mean, they didn't all want to marry their sisters, so it wasn't that. I sometimes wonder if it was, you know, this is the empire that came before us, and this one lasted so long, so we're going to try to outdo them. I don't, I don't know if that's just my thoughts on it. It's possible, although Rome, rather than, you know, going long, although, you know, it lasted for a considerable time, went big. That was the whole Roman idea. I mean, they were going to rule the entire world. Go big or go Greek. That sounds so dirty. I know. <laughs> well, it is Roman month, so we get on to the killing of Tiberius. So Caligula and his guard, they sort of scheme this little plan, and Macro is going to take care of Tiberius. And therefore, Caligula becomes Caesar then. At about 45 minutes in, now he's in charge, and everything kind of moves forward from there. So the first thing that his sister Drusilla tries to get him away from is the whole concept, as you said before. No, you can't marry me. We're Romans. We're not Egyptians. I'm going to marry you. You can't. We're not Egyptians. I know. We are much more beautiful. Rome is not Egypt. And stop looking at yourself like that. Let's go to Egypt then. <laughs> you are a fool. <laughs> Caesar cannot be a fool. But he's trying very hard. Caesar cannot be a fool. Little boots. Ooh. They'll throw you in the Tiber if you attempt to move the government. So... You are going to marry a respectable Roman lady of the senatorial class. So, therefore, we got to find you a good woman, and um, you need to have an heir who can um, take over, you know, when you're gone. So, she uh, lands him in, I believe it is, once again, this whole uh, ISIS cult, isn't it, that he finds Helen Mirren? Yeah, there's a lot of ISIS going on there, and there's a statue of ISIS that we'll see later on and everything. But, yeah, I think you're right. I think it is a, it's an ISIS party. Bring your own. <laughs> There you go. So they are to be married, but contingent on her bearing him his child first. So she is gets pregnant, and they're going to have a kid, and then they end up getting married. But that's a little while off. So eventually, there is this whole question with um, another kid that was raised by Tiberius, which would have been, I believe, his grandson, uh, Germellus. And what did he see, what did he know in reference to the assassination of Tiberius and the takeover by Caligula? Which apparently was kind of 
dialogue. I, it, one of the funny things about this film, and sorry to keep throwing in little asides here, but one of the funny things about this film is that it seems that everybody has their own memories of it. And even though some things are documented, it, their people will go against that. And even when you hear Malcolm McDowell on the audio commentary, there's one part where he's like, oh, yeah, well, I was supposed to do this, but then I refused to do it. So, you know, I was a much better person for that. And then the, the film kind of proves him wrong. And he was like, oh, yeah, I guess I did do that. And we'll come up to that in a, a few minutes. But uh, that's the whole uh, wedding scene that we'll talk about. But in, in this, he was talking about um, – he took a lot of the dialogue from the point out the person that killed Tiberius scene to Jamelis, um, from what Guccione had said <laughs> to one of the play, uh, penthouse pets who had been elbowed, uh, and he wanted to know exactly who had elbowed this pet. So he w- said almost verbatim what McDowell says in this scene. I've also heard it said that the profile on that coin that you see in the credit sequence actually looks far more like Bob uh, Guccione than it does like Malcolm McDowell or like Caligula, if one is to go by you know, historical sculpture. Yeah, I totally see that. All he needs is a couple of, what, Irish wolfhounds or whatever those big-ass dogs he had hanging around his office all the time. Irish wolfhounds, I think. Yep. Oh, wait, or was it Rhodesian Ridgebacks that he Rhodesian had? Ridgeback, you're right. Yep. So at this point, he turns on Macro, has him put up for execution for the death of Tiberius. And this leads us to the thing that I see in here as a possible symbolic item, but possibly not a real thing. And this is what I'm talking about is the execution machine. There's this big red like Roman looking wall and it moves towards them and there's people buried up to their neck and they get their head cut off by the bottom of this thing. And I can't believe that this thing actually existed if it did. I cannot attest to its uh, historical accuracy. So, but the Romans were extremely inventive in the uh, the area of inflicting pain and humiliation on people. So, if anybody would have come up with that, it would have been them. This might be my favorite part of the movie. Why is that? I love the execution machine. <laughs> I don't know why. The whole idea of everybody's just kind of partying. And what are they throwing? Like apples at these people's heads that are buried up to their necks and kind of reminds me of Motel Hell a little bit. And, uh, you know, you just got that big thresher that's coming towards them. I don't know. It feels like um, it's like the Saw movies, but so many years earlier, this kind of inventive way of, of killing people. I really just kind of had a lot of fun with that but this is also one of those areas where and i think this is in the version that that you are relating right now rob where we get the introduction introduction of a couple side characters that play a fairly major part in the film and you can tell that there's more that's going on because Caligula asks somebody, you know, oh, who's that dude over there? And oh, yeah, this is, you know, it, oh, it was the the woman that he saw when he met Sazonia. Oh, there she is, and there's her fiance. Oh, well, blah blah blah. And then all of a sudden, you have this weird dissolve, and it's like, what the hell just happened? And we get these kind of strange dissolves going all throughout this film, and it seems like 
every single time that happens, we're we're kind of lapping the film. We're we're missing quite a bit here. And so I know that you know in different things that we've read, there's a lot more to this. And the the gentleman that's pointed out gets thrown into the um, the arena, and there's this whole thing where he gets crowned because he's victorious and all this kind of stuff. And it's like just bad, bad editing going on in this film just because of these weird dissolves that are happening. Well, I know also that after the cut that was done, after Brass had been thrown off his own movie, apparently one of the problems with the the version that the English editor who cut it, and it was cut in England specifically because in Italy, artists in general, including directors, legally have a great deal of power over their product, shall we say, to use the Hollywood term. And um, if that cutting had been done in Rome, I don't think Puccioni would have been able to take it away from Tinto Brass. So anyway, they moved it to England, and apparently the editor, was who, whose name I have never seen, um, was an older English editor known as a fantastic technician who was apparently so appalled by all the sex in the film that he cut most of it out. And then Guccione saw that and was, well, appalled. So it had to be put back in. And, you know, the more you, the more you cut films, the more you damage things and lose things. I mean, it, it shouldn't be that way. But when cutting film was a purely physical process, and it really was taking pieces of celluloid and cutting them apart and then sticking them together with, with editing tape... You don't. You didn't want to be passing films through that process too many times. Bad things happen, especially when everybody is suing everybody. Yeah, and we definitely have a a big discussion coming up with uh, one of our guests about all of the legal fun <laughs> that went on with this film. So it's uh, it's it's just amazing. Yeah, you know, at the same time, you were talking about how there's sort of this at times sort of this weirdness, Mike. This I don't know, maybe like dream logic or nightmare or something like that. It just doesn't seem to be playing in reality. I always got the feeling um, since, you know, really getting into this film that actually Caligula is sort of the side sequel to Clockwork Orange. And especially with that whole scene of Malcolm McDowell um, reading the Bible and believing that he was uh, taking part in the, uh, the crucifixion of Christ. I read all about the scourging and the crowning with thorns. And I could vidy myself helping in and even taking charge of the toll-chocking and the nailing in being dressed in the height of Roman fashion. Well, you know, actually, I think comparing McDowell's Caligula to his Alex in Clockwork Orange, it should have been inevitable, and I'm surprised that more people didn't see that earlier, since the films opened fairly close together. Nobody had forgotten Clockwork Orange by the time Caligula opened. But I think that the biggest thing that draws those characters together is that they act like angry children. They, they don't have that kind of, kind of adult veneer of no matter how much I want to kick that guy, I'm not going to kick that guy because that's not the adult way of dealing with, with the situation. They are, they are almost pure id, both of them, which is, of course, what makes them so incredibly dangerous because nobody could ever know what, which way they were going. 
Uh, Caligula was one of those people who the thing that you said yesterday that was the absolute right thing to say could be the absolute wrong thing tomorrow when you wind up buried up to your neck with the with the killing machine blades whirling around you. There was no way of knowing because it wasn't rational. It was almost dreamlike. It's funny that you say that because that's kind of how people describe Guccione sometimes as far as what you might say to him is absolutely fine and there were people that could call bullshit on him whenever and he was absolutely fine with them. Some Somebody looks at him cross-eyed one day, and all of a sudden, he's like, I'm going to ruin your life. And it's like, what is the deal? So I, it, it sounds like he might have had a little bit of uh, empathy for this character. Oh, I don't know. I think perhaps he didn't see that. I don't think, I, I really doubt that Gugioni ever saw himself as a Caligula. I think he saw himself as like the guy who could always figure out what, what the right thing to do here was, what the right next step was to take. How to, how to take this mess of a movie and save it. But of course, if you're the director who directed that movie and was supposed to be cutting it, well, that's pretty Caligula-like. So this A lot of this whole story of Caligula kind of reminds me, and not the, the movie, but the, the making of the movie, reminds me a lot of when we've covered Magnificent Ambersons on the show before, and when we've covered uh, Electric Light and Blue. I guess the Electric Light and Blue stuff, because that was a producer who was this music mogul and kind of got into the Hollywood life and all of a sudden he's going to direct this film. He knows what's best and he does all of this stuff you know, completely on his own or tries to. He kind of uses his director of photography as kind of his backup. And a lot of what I've heard about the making of Caligula really kind of reminds me of this whole megalomania around, you know, I know best for this production. And so that it's all about power and corrupting power is, is just very ironic to me that that's the theme of the movie and what's happening behind the scenes as well. And again, Tinto Brass has said that in interviews. He basically said it was a huge power struggle, that three-pointed power struggle. And that, that never bodes well for the final film. Sorry, I've taken us so far adrift <laughs> of the plot. That's okay. We're at the execution machine and we get that great line. If only all Rome had just one neck. Which seems to be the moment where we really kind of get that Caligula is this anarchistic figure, which kind of bleeds through every once in a while. But there's so much other stuff that's going on that I kind of lose that thread. I mean, we get that a lot more as we go along with the plot, with the way that he kind of baits the Senate and you know just does all of this stuff, just like this kind of nasty little child that we were just talking about. And you know, it's like he wants to see how far he can push it, and that's the line to me that seems to to state that the most. But again, we kind of lose it because then we're moving on from there into is this where we get into like the whole wedding thing or yeah well i mean let's let's talk about pushing it i don't even think it's even a philosophical pushing it so much at times as it is a literal geography push it well let's go move to egypt let's go over here let's go invade britain um you know going all over the place and then when the country's sort of running out of cash because he's spending all this money on this stuff uh he decides to kidnap the senator's wives and open an imperial brothel because of course who wouldn't want to sleep with the senator's wives and that's a great way to make money for the state it is indeed can i go back to that line by the way though if only all rome had just one 
didn't notice this when I first saw the film. I've never noticed it until I was watching it last night. That line is what the serial killer Carl Pandram said uh, when he went on trial for a series of murders of basically homeless men, of whom he was one. Uh, the only difference was that he said, would the, the entire world had one neck and I had my hands around it. Nice. Creepy. Was that before or after Caligula came out? Panzeron was executed in either the late 20s or the early 30s. So way, way, way before. It seems like maybe uh, Gore Vidal being the, the reader and knowing all that, maybe that was uh, one of the lines from him that uh, he probably thought, hey, that would work. As indeed it does, but I, I have no idea. But yesterday it just struck me as, as such a striking and yet irrelevant parallel because, of course, Carl Panzerheim was at the absolute bottom of the world. I mean, he's a homeless hobo, and Caligula was at the absolute top of it. So and I'm not sure that you can make any parallels there between their characters or their upbringing, their natures, their surroundings. It's, it's so precise an echo that I can't believe it's an accident. So we then, after the execution scene, the execution machine, we end up with uh, more sex, uh, including the in, in this version, the inserts of the uh, penthouse pets lesbian sex scene, which uh, you'll hear was, was not a very fun shoot. And then, as Mike, you alluded to, um, Caligula wants to bring some wedding gifts to a young couple. Yes, Proculus and was it um, Livia, the other woman? The, the bride? For sure it's Proculus. He says Proculus's name quite a few times. It'd be a good drinking game. Almost as much as the, whenever he says his horse's name, that would be another good take-a-drink moment. But yeah, this is the scene. Actually, um, Leon, who was on the uh, Black Shampoo episode, he was asking me, gosh, probably about two years ago, have you seen Caligula? And I'm like, no, not yet. And he's like, oh, you got to see it. There's this scene with this guy, Malcolm McDowell, and there's this, he, and he, he's got this guy on the table, and he spreads all this lard on this guy's ass, and then he fists this guy. And I'm just like, okay, well, if that's not a recommendation. <laughs> For this movie, I don't know what is. And then when I saw the the scene, it's kind of like you were saying at the beginning, Rob, where it's this whole idea of like things kind of being built up in your mind or you hear things about this film and you, you think you know what's going to happen. Really, you don't actually see the fisting. And I don't think that, you know, I, I, I can't see this actually working the way that it, it was set up. Yeah, what it is is he crashes their wedding party. And since he's, you know, the emperor, it's like, oh, yeah, I've come to uh, praise the couple and I want to give them some wedding gifts. So, uh, But we have to do this in private. So come on in the back. So he takes the two to... To the kitchen, and he is very excited about the fact that they're both virgins. And he's like, are you sure she's really a virgin? So, of course, he um, decides to test that himself, and in the name of the people of Rome and the Senate. I, Caligula Caesar, command open your eyes, Proculus. Command in the name of the Senate. Over them! The Senate and the people of Rome! 
as he says, when he thrusts into both of them with the whole fisting thing. I actually thought the first time I saw this or heard about it that he he did that fist thing and like lost his ring and then had to go back in and get it. Now, I don't know where that image came from because he has this, you know, he has like the emperor ring that he takes from Tiberius and that's supposed to be the, you know, the the, the sigil of, of of the Caesar. And for some reason, I thought that that's what he did, but I'm mistaken. That is not the case, not neither of the edits. It was very brave of you to tell us that. <laughs> well, you know, you know that just would have added like an extra level of comedy and horror at the same time. Yeah, and it seems that all the comedy was kind of removed from this film because I've read about a lot of comic scenes and this might have been one of them. But apparently, you know, and there is that little flourish there, the one that I was talking about earlier where Caligula takes one of the flowers off of his, uh, his headdress thing and sticks it in the guy's bum. And that's the one where on the audio commentary he's like, oh, yeah, I didn't do that. They, the guy asked me not to, and I said, sure, no problem. And then they proceed to sit and watch that scene. He's like, okay, yeah, I guess I was wrong. I guess I did do that. <laughs> so it's like – You might want to go back and review the film first before you do the audio right. commentary. I'm just saying. You know, you might not want to do a cold after – you haven't seen it in 30 years. Yeah, but this whole film just seems like so many people's memories are so fuzzy. And it's like, well, did this really happen? No, no, of course not. And then it – it's proven that it did or you know a document comes out that says that it did or a still or something it's like okay who's really remembering this film correctly so it's interesting and even just to hear the differences of these audio commentaries between helen mirren and mcdowell and sometimes their stories line up and sometimes they're so completely different it's like it feels very rashomon to me well also when you look at the audio commentaries there's one with john steiner uh, who says at one point, and you know, there were a lot of drugs on that set. So perhaps that <laughs> accounts for some of these things. Uh, and, and says it in a very jocular way, because that's the way things were then, but um, could, could account for some, though not all, of the oddities of Caligula. Yeah, hearing Helen Mirren talk about going in and meeting Peter O'Toole for the first time, and he had switched from booze, which he was told by his doctors was going to kill him, switched from that to grass, and that it was just like you know walking into this cloud of... <laughs> of grass <laughs> like it's like okay yeah that that does explain a few things you know we're not quite up to the cocaine 80s or anything but yeah definitely a, a lot of uh, a lot of substances being abused well she herself says that that film to her was like an acid trip that was when she was making it so it, it definitely has that again dream logic drug logic you know that kind of non non-linear and wow did I really do that? Yeah, I guess I did. And all of that. Yeah, I can see why Maria Scheider kind of uh, freaked out and was like, no, I'm not doing this. And then was off and, you know, yeah, hanging off. Yeah, but she had a huge drug problem. So. Yes, exactly. You would think that she would have fit in a little bit more. Yeah. <laughs> And she just won last tango. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You would think this would be a walk in the park after working with Brando. Apparently not. <laughs> so um I I already gave up some of it already. From there we move on to the whole thing with him sending the legion and he goes with them to attack Britain, which basically is just attacking a bunch of reeds in a pond. And then setting up the Imperial Brothel, coming back and building this giant ship to commemorate his uh, 
his excursion to uh, to Britain and their victory, of course. And um, then he also decides that, uh, yeah, he better get rid of the kid. He better get rid of uh, Jamelis. Who, by the way, is an exceptionally unattractive young actor. It's a, it's a nice piece of casting uh, because it, it does, if he were a truly lovely, attractive child, you might feel worse for him. But I have to say, I don't even feel that bad for Jamelis when he falls off to be executed. I'm trying to remember how he gets killed. I don't know if they show us. I, I think there's just the whole scene with him. Uh, they're, they're having the feast, and he says, what, you took an antidote uh, before we even ate? What, you don't trust me? Obviously, there's something wrong going on here. And then he uh, has him sent off, and then he goes, oops, I guess I was wrong. I guess he is innocent, so he didn't do anything. Oops. you know. And then everybody has a big hearty belly laugh. Yes, I think I think the worst thing you see is when he's being dragged away because he's being dragged by two guys who are three times his size because they're grown men and he's a child or at least a teenager. But that's it. You don't see anything worse. Might be the only off-screen death that we have in the entire film. I guess so. Yeah. Too bad we didn't get a chance to fire up the execution machine again because I could have gotten. <laughs> I would have loved to have seen that again. I would have gotten behind that decision. I, yeah, I would have been behind that one. I kind of wish that they'd bring that thing back. Bring yeah. it back where? Well, you know, the, the Silverdome's been empty for a while. So There you go. The Silverdome. Yeah. Let's, let's revamp the Silverdome, and especially because they're having trouble with all these executions all over the country. Oh, are we using the right materials? We can't get them. Whatever. Just send them to Pontiac, get the execution machine, and then put it on TV. We'll be good to go, don't you think? I think that would be a brilliant idea. And a teachable moment as well. <laughs> We're all about teachable moments here at the projection booth. Mm. So uh, Caligula basically pushes it as far as he can go. And this brings us to spoiler, spoiler, spoiler. Um, he's asked for the password by the guards. He gives them the password, the lovely word. Scrotum. So be it. They slaughter him, his wife, and his daughter, and da 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 da. Blood runs down the steps. Of course, right there in the lovely arena where we saw the uh, execution machine. Another missed opportunity. <laughs> you you kind of skipped over some stuff there, Rob. Yeah, well, I'm I'm having trouble remembering all these different edits, so feel free. <laughs> well, well, otherwise we would be here for like five hours because it just feels I, like yeah, I'm trying this to move thing it along. Goes on forever. Yeah. I'm, I'm trying to hit even, the high points. He didn't even mention Incatatus, his horse, oh, yeah. his lovely horse, lovely. and how he sleeps with his horse. Yeah. Hail Caesar! Hail Caesar! All hail Caesar's beautiful horse, Incitatus! Hail the most honorable Incitatus! And how his horse is there when he gets sick, and there's the fever, and he's got the fever for the flavor of the Pringles, and Drusilla's got the fever for the flavor of the Pringles, and she dies, but he's okay. And it's like, oh my gosh, it just goes on and on and on. And meanwhile, there's, you know, dicks everywhere, dick, 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 and there's some lesbian things going on, and yeah, it's just like, oh my gosh, just... Just a, a lot of stuff happening in this movie. There is. And actually, one of the things that I think is odd and reflects the fact that there were so many hands on this film is that fever dream, that fever sequence, is actually in the totally wrong place historically because historical records suggest that Caligula was actually just fine for the first six or seven months of his reign and then caught something and had an, an incredibly high fever 
And when he finally recovered, and everybody thought he was going to die, when he finally recovered, it wasn't the same, that he foiled his brain or something. So to put that sequence so close to the end, well, not the end, but certainly far away from the beginning is kind of kind of odd. It seems like everybody associates Caligula with madness, and he doesn't necessarily seem mad in this film. He just seems, as we mentioned before, like an anarchist. He just seems like, okay, I'm going to mess with people as much as I possibly can, and I kind of respect that. But in another case, he doesn't – he just seems – I don't know, this whole idea of him being a god and all this stuff, that seems like the stuff that would come after this fever, after this bout. So, And him rejecting the gods when Drusilla dies, because it seems like that should have more gravitas to it. I mean, this is the one woman that he loved above all others, and it feels like he probably loved her more than Saisonia. But that never really kind of comes through for me. It just feels like... Caligula is um, at arm's length at all times. I never feel like I really kind of connect with this guy, either as look at this lunatic or as look at this guy who's messing with everybody, because either character I can kind of get behind or a character that moves from one to the other I could kind of get behind, but the way that it's presented, I just always feel like I'm really being kept at arm's length from this entire film, and it feels like it feels like it's up on a stage and there is a proscenium and I'm just like watching these people from afar rather than necessarily coming into this world and being a part of it and kind of, you know, feeling how they're feeling and being able to empathize with any of these characters, even, you know, poor Longinus who is, you know, the one guy who's really feels like he's, you know, getting the shaft over and over and over again as Caligula, Caligula just does more and more, kind of zany stuff and pushing his luck it, it, you know he's very put upon by this but yet i can't even empathize with this guy i actually wonder with that i'm a god thing whether that's a remnant of some other version of the script or something because what you know one of the things about the caesars is they all became gods after they died anyway so it's so you had to make a big deal about being deified because i mean that was that was in the hand you were dealt um, it just—it seems strange. And it seemed weird, too, the whole idea of there's the one part that really kind of shocks people when he's like, oh, well, I'll be the I'll be called president or something. I'm trying to remember the exact bit about it. But it's like you're already emperor. So whatever you're proclaiming here doesn't seem like it's that shocking or even it almost sounded like a step down as yeah. far as the power went. So yeah. I was like, why is everybody so shocked about this? Well, he was like deliberately trying to usurp the Republic where he was going, nah, we don't even need the Senate. So, but it didn't really matter anyway, because he was pretty much running wild, doing whatever he wanted. I agree with you on that. I, Caligula Caesar, command in the name of the Senate and the people of Rome. I, Caligula Caesar, command in the name of the Senate and the people of Rome. I Caligula Caesar command in the name of the Senate people of Rome. I Caligula Caesar command in the name of the Rome. I Caligula Caesar command in the name of the Senate people of Rome. I Caligula Caesar command in the name of the Senate people of Rome. Rome, Rome, Caesar, Caesar, Rome, Rome, rubbish, rubbish, rubbish. I love the way that he messed around with the Senate. This whole idea of him coming in and making them say hail to his horse and all this, and him coming in and saying, "Okay, you know, the, here's this the, these crazy things I don't want you to do." And the way that he he starts buying like sheep, and they all buy after him, and it's just like, you know, that's pretty much for him 
like all bets are off now. I can do whatever I want. These guys are, you know, at my beck and call. And yet he, he continues to push in the whole idea of the, the brothel with these guys' wives. It's just like, this guy is great. I love this Caligula guy, the way he's messing with these senators. I think you can see again, like Tinto Bras puts a lot of emphasis on that because, yeah, he's an anarchist. Um, and, and I think it was in a conversation with Helen Mirren, uh, who congratulated him because he was running for a parliamentary position on the radical ticket. Um, but it was unfortunate that he didn't, he didn't win. And Tinto Brass said to her, well, no, no, the point isn't that we want to win. We don't want to be government. <laughs> We're just there to rile everybody up to make everybody talk about things that we think are wrong, but we don't actually want to become part of the structure. So I think that that's part of what he's doing with Caligula. Caligula doesn't want to be part of the structure, and one of the big structures was the Senate. He just wants to go and stir everything up, which he most certainly does. I also got the feeling, and this for some reason seemed more in the alternate cut, not the unrated cut that we were originally talking about, that I wrote this in my notes. I get the feeling that Caligula might not be crazy, but he's kind of someone that wants to be put down and out of their misery. And and we find this with a lot of self-destructive people that sometimes they're too much of a coward to kind of take themselves out. So what they do is they push other people around them in order to do it for them, to either you know beat them up or bully them or to you know literally kill them, I guess, because they're too they they just can't do it themselves. So they would just rather just kind of push people to see how far they can go, and if they can get someone to take them out for them themselves. So this this was Caligula basically doing suicide by cop. That's what you're suggesting. I felt that way in the alternate cut, not so much in this like unrated uh, extended cut for some reason. I, I don't know why. It just there there's certain things that are in there. Um like he has like these fantasy things and it just seems more like like he just wants to push people till they hit him back. <laughs> I don't know, you know, kind of like a kid in a schoolyard, like you were talking about. You know that this is not a developed adult. This is someone who just wants to keep poking at people. Well, I like the part where they're in the brothel and he's making fun of the army guy. He's making fun of Longinus, but he's also making fun of the army guy. And the army guy says at one point to Longinus, you know, the army stands with him, and at least he hasn't done anything to us. You know, he's made the Senate look like fools but he's not done anything to us and i think it's right after that you know he's he's using the brothel to collect money to send the troops to britain and it's right after that that they have the scene with him basically humiliating the army um by making them attack the uh, papyrus and saying that he's been to england which is just this absolutely kind of bizarre scene and i didn't really get it the first time I saw it, and I don't kind of get it now, but we also have the army kind of being made fun of a little bit in the brothel scene where they're doing his uh, little boots dance and everything and, and kind of strutting around. So it seems like, okay, I've pushed the Senate as far as I can push them. Now it's time to mess with the army, and I think that's what is his undoing, really. I do actually think that that, that the uh, the members of the army who are doing that dance is, is the absolute best thing about that orgy scene. It is so crazed. And so it's also so old Hollywood in a funny way. I mean, it looks like one of, it's like, when does the musical numbers start? You know, uh, it, it is just bizarre. And it certainly ties into the overall 
love of spectacle and all of that. But it's just fascinating to watch because they look ridiculous. And that's where the music really kind of kicks into high gear for me and really kind of emphasizes what we're seeing on screen because otherwise the music is kind of like meh to me throughout the rest of the film, especially when they're picking up like other classical pieces that to me have other meanings to them. Like, you know, the Romeo and Juliet part that starts off the film that kind of comes back a few times. And I'm like, where is the, the Bruno Nicolai score? Why am I hearing all these classical pieces? I want to hear what Nicolai put to this. And that's where it really feels like the music for this scene is what was intended. And other times it feels like meh, maybe, this was some new music that was put in here. Yeah, it's very percussive during that uh, brothel scene and all that you're talking about. The, the the music that made me almost fall out of my chair laughing is there's this really sappy stuff that plays over the death of Drusilla, and I'm just like, oh my god, is that horrible? Like, you couldn't get something else? Yeah, and apparently there's they use a, a bit of a um, an adagio from. I think it's from Spartacus, and uh, by that point, that song had been used in a commercial in the UK. I could be completely wrong when I'm saying this, or a, a TV show in the UK. And so when people saw it in, in England, they were kind of laughing, because it's like, you know, using a, a, t- a theme song um, from, you know, using the theme from Friends in the middle of this, you know, dramatic moment in another film, and it's like, wait a second here. <laughs> You know, actually, I had a funny experience like that very recently, uh, although the influence went the other way. Uh, I'd never seen Cool Hand Luke, and there's that big fight sequence in Cool Hand Luke with that incredibly percussive music. And I heard it, and all I, all I could think was, oh, my God, that's the eyewitness news music. Oh, yeah. First time my folks watched um, Cool Hand Luke, I'm like, where did I know that music from? What's this from? <laughs> <laughs> Where's Bill Bonds when I need him? Yeah. Good evening, everybody. I assume that you saw what I saw. The pictures were not pretty. The words were not pretty. For the most part, the story was downright ugly. Was it the truth? They called it Detroit's agony. An estimated 13 to 15 million Americans all over the country just saw a very bleak view of the city of Detroit on ABC's prime time, and they saw the mayor. So this alternate cut of the film, uh, did you get a chance to see that version? Uh, yeah. As did I. Okay. There's, I only noticed a few things. I mean, most of the hardcore is either cut or trimmed down considerably. The, the one scene that I really liked in there... Uh, there's actually two of them that I really like. One is what I'll call the bloody fantasy, because I can't really think of what else to call it. It's about 32 minutes in, and there's this close-up of his face and his eyes, and he's got these images of it, it looked like it was shot against this, like a white wall or something. And there's like people getting splashed with blood, and there's like bondage and whipping and all of this stuff, and it intercuts between them. And then there's also I think there's like uh, centurions or guards, and they're all taking a shower or something. They're all covered in mud and dirt or something, and they're having this conversation among themselves. That whole scene is missing from the other cut, and I actually thought that was was well done. 
Uh, the other is, is the death of Tiberius starts earlier and it ends later. And we also get more of the fact that Jamelis actually saw something as opposed to, I think it's more of an implication that he saw something in the other cut. I think you're right about that. I think it is much clearer that uh, Jamelis saw and that Jamelis will have to go at some point. But of course, he's going to have to go at some point anyway. Um, because he's competition. Yeah, this alternate cut definitely moves a lot faster for me, and I was appreciative of that. Um, it still could have lost an hour, and I would have been happy. I can agree with you on that. The other thing that I also liked in this version is, and it's not a, a literal bookend, but it's pretty close, with the birds, where the first scene that we get out of the credits, the bird is in the in the bedchamber, and he's freaking out. Oh, it's a bird. And then at the end, before he's killed, we see the bird again. So the idea of the bird is omen, or a message or something like that. Yeah, which which makes sense in one way, but then when I rewatched the other version last night, I was like, oh, okay, he doesn't have his beard in this scene. So I guess it shouldn't have been at the beginning, but I don't know. I mean, it does work better dramatically, so I can definitely see why they would have put that at the beginning, because I do like that bookend of the bird as the omen in the way that we see the bird in there. I think we see it a total of three times and it makes sense that each time is this kind of portent of doom and it's like, okay, but uh, yeah, in the way that they work that bed scene into the first cut that we were talking about where it's like Tiberius and he wakes up from this dream and I'm like, wait, are they back in Rome or are they over in Capri still? And that's where I was really thrown into my tizzy of, I don't know what the hell's going on here again. I'm just so confused, Rob. I'm so confused by this movie. Oh, oh, I'm telling you. I'm telling you. It is confusing because all these various cuts, all this stuff that's going on, uh, the logic sometimes works, sometimes it doesn't. It goes off the tracks. It comes back. It loops on itself. Yeah. So I'm hoping that uh, maybe we can get a little bit more of an understanding from uh, from our interviews coming up. We can only hope. So we're going to take a break and play an interview with Ranjit Sandhu, the co-author of forthcoming book called 200 Degrees of Failure, The Unmaking of Caligula, after these important messages. Movies need only three things. Badasses. You tell me what you want done, and I'll do the hell out of it. A chick with drive who don't take no jive. Boobs. Do you know that the female breast, known to be the source of life since Eve, can be deadly weapons? And body counts. Body count. The mathematics of murder and menace. The BBNBC podcast discusses lesser-known action, exploitation, and horror cult cinema. You can find the show on iTunes, Stitcher Smart Radio, and SoundCloud by searching for BBNBC Podcast. You can also listen to each episode directly on the show's website at badassesboobsandbodycounts.com. Got the goddamn message? Let's go to work. If you listen to Proudly Resents, the cult movie podcast you would know how to properly crush a head but let's say you want to crush a head like toxic avenger or the famous full head crushing scene you take a cantaloupe carve out the inside then you load what we call loading the cantaloupe we used to put in hamburger mixed with cranberry sauce but now because i'm a vegetarian it's only cranberry and spaghetti and things that are not animal then you put a wig on the cantaloupe and paint a little happy face bingo (laughs) 
That was Lloyd Kaufman from Troma Films. To hear more interviews and reviews, go to ProudlyResents.com or find Proudly Resents on iTunes and Stitcher. Hi, this is Andrew from We Hate Movies, and you're listening to The Projection Booths. If you feel like laughing after listening to some serious film discussion, head on over to our show, whmpodcast.com. Every Tuesday, a new episode drops, us ragging on bad movies, whereas the good folks here at The Projection Booth are talking about good, hearty, cinema-related stuff. Go here for the cinema. Come to us for the laughs afterwards. We Hate Movies every Tuesday. Right under the other name, you did the liners for the the Blu-ray? Right, yeah. I did the liner notes under that pseudonym, R.J. Buffalo. And there was a reason for that. I used to live in Buffalo. And I learned a lot of things there. Uh, (laughs) One thing was that everybody hated my guts. And one of the reasons for it is because they found my name creepy. They all got spooked. And after 9-11, I couldn't even find an apartment to live in. No landlord would even talk to me. So, Oh, wow. So a friend in Colorado, in Fort Collins, said, you should use a pseudonym. And she said, why don't you call yourself RJ? And I said, that's, that's incredible because when I was working in a carnival in western and central New York, Amusements of Hamburg, there was a fellow there that I never met, but all day long, everyone was calling him, Hey, RJ, over here, RJ. And I thought, why not RJ? That, that would be perfect for me. If I were to use RJ, it sounds similar enough to my name, but it wouldn't spook anybody. And then my friend in Fort Collins said, but you need a surname, too. What should your surname be? And she didn't have a, a suggestion for that. And then about a day later, I just burst out laughing, and I said, why not Buffalo. I'm in love with Buffalo. I was doing historical research on Buffalo. So I went onto the computer to find out if it was a real name, and it is. And I found out that about 150 years ago, there was actually a Mrs. R.J. Buffalo somewhere out west. And I thought, okay, fine. That's going to be my name. But then I started rethinking things, and why not just put my real name on the book? I don't care if people get spooked. So there you go. That's what happened. Absolutely useless story. <laughs> so we should not refer to you uh, by that. We'll refer to you by your actual name, which is... Right, Ranjit. Well, the last name, which I never use, except when I have to sign my signature, is Sandhu. Well, I guess to start off, why a book on Caligula? Well, when I was 14, my father had the radio on in our VW camper. And my father just had it on to have noise in the background. But this was the one time ever that when he got to his destination, he kept the radio on because he wanted to hear what was being said. He was utterly fascinated, and so was I. It was an interview with Gore Vidal talking about his book, Burr. And that night, my father bought a copy of the book, read it straight through. I tried reading it. I was a very stupid 14-year-old. I had too much trouble comprehending it. Now it's one of my favorite books. So then when I was about 19, I was 19, not about 19, I was exactly 19, I was at the University of New Mexico, thoroughly miserable, not where I wanted to be at all. I didn't want to be in school. 
and I needed to find an excuse not to do my homework. And the excuse was, let's go over to the movie section, look up Malcolm McDowell and the trade annuals, and see what movies he's done that I don't know about. And so I read the trade annuals, and there was only one movie I did not know about. Gore Vidal's Caligula, 1976? What on earth is that? So I started looking it up on the microfilms and in the indexes, and I found that there was there were lawsuits involved with this movie. The movie had been withheld from release. I read an interview with Tinta Brass in the London Times. He was the director of the film. And after reading that one single interview, I decided he is my favorite filmmaker in the world, even though I've never seen a frame of anything he's done. I have to see this movie. And it became an obsession. And Tinto had sued the production because he said that they had mutilated his film beyond all recognition. And Gore Vidal sued Tinto because he said Tinto mutilated his script beyond all recognition. And I got curious. Well, what was the script and what was the movie that Tinto made? And it was driving me crazy for years. I watched the movie countless times. I could not see through it. I could not see what the script might have been. I could not see what Tinto's original ideas might have been. And I was banging my head against the wall. And then suddenly, someone on eBay sold Franco Rossellini's unpaid storage locker. Franco Rossellini was the producer of Caligula. And I spent more money than I owned to get those files. And I got them, stacks of them, which are now in my possession. And that explains almost everything. And it became a fascinating story about endless conflicts and misunderstandings. It taught me a lot of great lessons about how to live life. Never assume that your enemy really is your enemy. And never assume that your friend really is your friend. So, in a nutshell, that's it. So, when did you finally see the film? I saw it when it opened at Don Pancho's Art Theater in Albuquerque on uh, 4th of October, 1980. I saw the matinee screening. And contrary to what I was expecting, judging from all the publicity and news articles that had come out, there were only a handful of people in the auditorium. And I don't think anybody walked out, and I don't think anybody was outraged or offended by it. So it was a very quiet, uneventful show, but I found a lot of the movie fascinating and very frustrating because it was so horribly edited. And I've been watching it ever since, mostly on video. What was your first impression of the film? What did you think of it? Did you were did it live up to the hype that you had probably built up for yourself? No, no. I saw a lot of beautiful visuals and a lot of graceful camera moves, all thwarted by the clumsiest editing I have ever seen in my life. I thought the movie should have been much faster paced than it was. It actually became tedious after a while. Uh, that was the very first time in my life I had ever seen hardcore porn, those couple minutes that they spliced in. And I was amazed at how unexciting it was. And I wish they had cut it all out again. But the movie did not make much sense. And I found that very frustrating because I was certain that in the original conception, it must have made sense. And I was right because recently a friend of mine has been reconstructing what he can of the film. And he showed me his tentative reconstruction. And for the first time, it makes sense and it's fast paced and it's hilarious. And Tinto Brass approves of this. So anyway, 
I've seen the movie about 50, 60 times now. Going back to the beginning before the film is actually made, mm-hmm. how did the script idea come together? Did Gore Vidal just like write this on spec or did someone come to him and want to make this film and then Guccione got involved? <laughs> kind of how did that start? <laughs> okay, that is a most intriguing story. In 1965, Roberto Rossellini did a little manifesto, drafted a manifesto, and he got a lot of filmmakers to sign it, including Pinto Brass, that television should not be a wasteland. Television should be a force for good. Television should be for educating people about the past, about their place in the world. And one of the first movies he wanted to make for television was Caligula. And Tinto knew about this, and he was probably even involved in it. But there were problems. Uh, Rai TV didn't want to make it for some reason, and then it moved from studio to studio. And finally, Roberto's nephew, Franco Rossellini, decided that he would produce the movie. So he took Roberto over to Burbank, California, to visit Warner Brothers, and struck a deal. They were going to make a spaghetti western called Brothers Blue, which was made. Uh, Warner Brothers refused to release it. At least here they refused to release it. They were going to make a Fellini movie called Amarcord, and Warner Brothers said, that sounds too parochial. No American would be interested in that. They turned that down. But Caligula, that would be interesting. Yes, we would like a Roberto Rossellini movie about Caligula. Now, Roberto Rossellini, at this stage in his life, only wanted unknowns. He did not want professional actors. He wanted people off the street whose faces matched, and he would direct them and create them on screen. Warner Brothers did not feel that way. They wanted Dustin Hoffman to be the lead. They wanted a big-name cast. And when Roberto couldn't argue that down, he just canceled the film and said, you're not making Caligula. So Franco goes back to Italy, and he befriends a very famous filmmaker you may know named Paul Morrissey, who had just made a couple of movies in Italy. Franco asked Paul, would you like to make a movie for me? And Paul said, that would be dandy. What would you like to make? And Paul Morrissey said, how about a very inexpensive movie shot on a shoestring, all on natural locations, about Caligula? And no crowds, no spectacle, just behind the scenes, uh, just a little drama. Franco said, I own that project already. My uncle Roberto has it. And Paul didn't like Roberto's uh, treatment. He said, we need to find a real writer to do this. Let's go visit Gore Vidal. They were both longtime friends of Gore Vidal. They visit Gore Vidal. And they say, would you like to write a script about Caligula for us? And Gore was a bit stunned. He said, I'm already working on Caligula. So certainly, I'll join forces with you. Then um, Gore and Paul were working on the script, tossing ideas back and forth. Gore wrote a script. Franco tried to get funding for it. He was going to hook up with Titanus International. And then um, Gore Gore visited his agent. And his agent said, let's charge your standard price, which is $225,000. Gore went back to Franco and Paul and said, my price is $225,000. And that killed the deal because by Italian law, it was illegal for an Italian company to pay a foreigner that much money for a script. $10,000, okay. $20,000, okay. Not $225,000. In order to pay him that much, they would need to get an American financing. So 
right after that, Gore, the movie was dead. Gore was thinking about doing it out of his own pocket. He had enough money. He was rich. Then the phone rang. It was a tenant of his. Gore owned property in Manhattan. He owned two apartment blocks. One of his tenants was an advertising executive by the name of Jack Silverman. Jack called him and said that he was now president of this new outfit called Penthouse Films, and they would like to make a movie, something with a lot of sex, but something serious, too. Did Gore have anything like this in, in the works? And Gore said, well, I just wrote a script about Caligula. That's how Bob Guccione got involved. So Guccione comes in, and mm-hmm. he, he's the one who ends up hiring Tinto Brass, right? Or had there been other directors who were interested? They're, they approached a number of directors. Guccione did not want Paul Morrissey because he did not like the Andy Warhol crowd, which is rather unusual because Franco Rossellini by that time was part of the Andy Warhol crowd. Guccione did not want Franco Rossellini to have anything to do with this movie. He wanted Gore to come over and just do the film of Gore. But of course, that was illegal because by now Franco Rossellini owned the project. They approached Nicholas Rogue, who was busy with other things. He was on a promotional tour for The Man Who Fell to Earth, and he was also in the midst of planning production for a movie version of The Fan Club, an Irving Wallace novel which never happened. They approached Peter Medak, who some years before was planning on directing Gore's movie version of Julian, which never happened. They approached Lena Wertmüller. And the funny thing about Lena Wertmüller is when they approached her to do Gore Vidal's Caligula, she opened her drawer of her desk and pulled out a script she had written in 1965, said, I have my own script of Caligula. So she didn't want to do Gore's version. She hated Gore's script anyway. And Tinto was actually Franco Rossellini's idea. Um, he had heard great things about Tinto. He had known Tinto since the 50s. And Franco Rossellini went to see Tinto. Tinto was running a completed seven-minute reel from Salon Kitty, which was still in post-production. thought this might be right. He ordered a copy of the reel shipped it over to Bob Guccione, who at that time was in London. Guccione watched that seven-minute reel, and as soon as it was over, he leapt out of his seat and boomed out, I want this man to direct Caligula! In a nutshell, that's how Tinto got the job. Now, Gore did not like Salon Kitty. Everyone was expecting him to, but he thought it was a terrible movie. He didn't want Tinto for it. He liked the set design, so he agreed to have Ken Adam do the sets, and Ken Adam resigned shortly afterwards. But Guccione was insistent, and Guccione had some sort of behind-the-scenes contract with Tinto, because Tinto was always around. He was in the limousines as as Malcolm McDowell and Gore Vidal were being escorted hither, thither, and beyond. He was having lengthy script discussions with Gore. Franco Rossellini never knew about any of this. And when Salon Kitty became the number one box office sensation in Italy, and Gore Vidal happened to be back in Hollywood at the time, it was just a fait accompli. Uh, Bob told Franco, let's hire Tinto. Franco agreed, and Bob hired Tinto himself. So this is a very strange situation Tinto was answerable only to Bob Guccione. Everyone else in the cast and crew was answerable only to Franco Rossellini. 
So if Tinto had a grievance, he could not go to Franco. He had to go to Bob. If anyone else had a grievance, they had to go to, <laughs> go to Franco, not to Bob. Uh, that, that was uh, quite a problem. But he and Gore worked well for several months on scripts and rewrites and so forth. And finally, they were both satisfied with the script they had. And then everything went wrong after that. Am I answering you in replies that are too lengthy? <laughs> no, these are perfect. These are great. Okay. Uh, we love these kind of details and everything. Okay. I'm curious about the, the casting. How did Malcolm McDowell come to be part of this? Aha! Uh-huh. Well, there were a number of actors going back to the 60s who were approached for this role. There was Alberto Sordi, who was a comic in Italy. He was middle-aged by then. He was supposed to play a 19-year-old emperor. For some reason, that never happened. Roberto Rossellini then decided he wanted Woody Allen, and Woody Allen said he would do it, but only on condition that he could wear his horn-rimmed glasses, and so that never happened. And then there were a number of actors who were approached through the years, when Gore did his script, they wanted, or, or Paul Morrissey decided that Mikhail Baryshnikov, who had just defected from the Soviet Union, would be a perfect Caligula. So he and Gore went to visit uh, Baryshnikov when he was touring in Italy. Baryshnikov couldn't speak a word of English. Paul Morrissey did not see that as a problem. That was fine. Just dub him. But... That couldn't come to be. I think that there was a scheduling conflict. And Paul want, I mean, Gore wanted uh, Peter Firth, who he thought would be perfect, and I agree. Uh, Bob Guccione said, no, Peter Firth looks too angelic. And Gore's response was, that's the whole point. And Guccione just refused to hear it and said, no, not, not Peter Firth. Do you have anyone else in mind? And Gore said... Well, how about Malcolm McDowell? He's very good. He could do the part. Despite his sinister eyebrows, he could do well. So they approached Malcolm McDowell in a very unusual way. Normally, a producer approaches an actor's agent. That's not what happened. Franco Rossellini's girlfriend throughout all the 60s was Countess Marina Cicogna. And Countess Marina Cicogna at the time was dating an actress named Florinda Balkan who had just starred with Malcolm McDowell in a movie called Royal Flash. Florinda Bolkan is the one who approached Malcolm and said, Franco and Gore would like to talk with you about being in their movie. Malcolm was thrilled. He loved Gore Vidal, was a huge fan of his, and would do anything that Gore wanted him to do. He said, absolutely, I will do the movie, and signed the contract in, I think, early December '75. And that's how he got involved. And there I come to this abrupt silence as soon as I say that. What about the rest of the cast, Helen Mirren and John Gilgood? I mean, so many great actors, but in so many smaller roles. Yeah. Gore wanted John Gilgood to play Tiberius. Now, Gore admired Sir John Gilgood as an actor, as a professional. And Sir John Gielgud loved Gore as a writer and read all of his books. But personally, the two hated one another. But they could put that hatred aside because professionally they adored one another. Sir John didn't want to do it, and his schedule didn't allow for it. According to the original schedule, the schedule was later modified by several months. He turned it down. Then they went to Peter O'Toole. Peter O'Toole and Gore had been friends since forever, probably going back to the early 60s. And Peter was thrilled to take that role. They approached Sir John again about taking a smaller role. 
and he reluctantly agreed. He said it would only be, I think, two weeks of filming. Helen Mirren was originally Gore Vidal's suggestion. I think, I'm not sure, but I think he liked the way that he, and that, that Malcolm and Helen worked together in a movie called Oh Lucky Man. So he suggested her. When Malcolm was hired, I think it was Tinta Brass who approached Malcolm and said, who should we get to play Sazonia? And Malcolm said, why not Helen Mirren? And I think those were two entirely unrelated suggestions. I don't think Malcolm knew that Gore wanted Helen. I don't think that Gore knew that Malcolm wanted Helen, but they both wanted Helen. So they flew Tinto over. They met Tinto's old acquaintance, Lindsay Anderson, who was directing Helen Mirren on stage in The Bed Before Yesterday. They all got together backstage after the show. Helen was totally enchanted by Tinto Brass and vice versa. They've been very good friends ever since. That's how she got in. Uh, Maria Schneider was in Tinto's suggestion. He was looking for someone to play Drusilla. And Gore Vidal wanted Claire Bloom, who was a longtime friend of his. Guccione did not want Claire Bloom. She said she was 45 years old. She's too old for the part. Malcolm McDowell felt the same. So it was left to Tinto to choose someone for Drusilla. He interviewed uh, Isabella Gianni. He interviewed Maria Schneider, decided that he liked Maria Schneider's look. She would be good for the film. But Maria Schneider was going through some emotional turmoil at the time and was rather unstable. And she had a good reason for resigning, but uh, it, it was just too troubling for her. So Tinto chose his old, or his friend, who had been a friend for a couple of years, who was in Salon Kitty, uh, Terrian Savoy. He did a pretty good job on screen visually. Uh, her voice was not so good, and that's why she was dubbed. But that's how those majors got into it. Uh, minor actors, uh, Guido Manari and uh, several of the others, they were friends of Franco Rossellini. That's how they got in. And others, I think, were just casting calls, or cattle calls, as they call them. One of the elements that's on the Blu-ray is uh, behind-the-scenes making of that was shot during the film. And one of the things yeah. that they're, they, they really sort of focus on is how they tried to keep the production rather secretive, tried to keep the media out and things like that. Uh, do you think that was for their own protection, or they didn't want to give away some of the secrets, or was it just basically a train wreck of a production? That was mostly marketing hype. Uh, a lot of journalists actually did get in. I mean, Alan King was on the set, and he shot a special on the set. Uh, there was also someone, some crew from Rai TV who did a little documentary about the making of the film. There, there were lots of journalists around. So that idea about closing the set was just... Uh, just something to stir up the media. It wasn't completely true. The behind-the-scenes making of documentary, it's, it's more of a, you know, a commercial for the film than a documentary, it was by Giancarlo Lui, who had some good ideas about what to do for a documentary. But Bob Guccione was always interfering, uh, you know, cut this out, show this instead, let's add some footage after you're done, and so it, it ended up being a promo film for Penthouse. And uh, incidentally, for those who might be curious, Giancarlo Lui did interview the producer of the film, Franco Rossellini, on camera. 
and all that footage is now missing. Guccione did not want the producer of the film in the movie about the making of the film. He wanted to take all the credit for himself. And since he was funding the documentary, he, that was his prerogative. Which documentary was that? Uh, it was called A Documentary on the Making of Gore Vidal's Caligula. That's what's on the supplement of the Blu-ray. Okay. Did you ever find the Alan King one? I have been trying like crazy. No library has it. No archive has it. ABC TV, which had a license to broadcast it twice, does not have it. Alan King's daughter is, well, she's a piece of work. She might have it, but we'll never know. The director of the documentary, Jerry Weissman, has a copy on VHS, but he can't find it. The producer of the Alan King show was um, Rupert Hitzig, and he does not have a copy. And so I'm still searching. There's got to be one out there. I would love to see it. The, the porn inserts that are in the film are rather infamous. How did those kind of come to be? Oh, that's a bit of a story. Guccione wanted to make a movie with a well-respected writer, with Shakespearean actors and luscious sets, not so that he could have a good movie. What he never told Gore was that all this stuff about a script and a director and making a movie and editing was all just a ruse. He just wanted to intercut hardcore porn with scenes of Shakespearean actors. So when the movie started, he approached Malcolm McDowell and said, I would like you to bugger a pig on camera. And Malcolm refused. He approached Maria Schneider and said that her love scenes with Malcolm should be for real, hardcore, and no fakery, no simulation, and she said absolutely not. And I think that's one of the reasons why she resigned a few weeks later. But he had a little game going on. It was his backup plan. There were several assistant directors on the film, Piernico Salinas and several of his secondary assistants. He told them to do one week of auditions for hardcore stuff, and they did. They did it in this dingy little restroom, I think in the basement of Deer Studios. Pinto never knew about it. Franco Rossellini never knew about it. And for a week, they just had people perform hardcore sex on videotape to see which ones Guccione would like to cast for the film. Once that was done, everything was quiet again. After the movie finished shooting, which was on Christmas Eve, 76, Guccione decided to go into action. He would get the people he liked back in front of the camera for a second audition, something harder. And a lot of people responded. He got maybe about 30 or 40 people, I think, and told Franco, don't demolish all the sets. Whatever sets you have left, just keep them for right now. There were three sets, and Franco kept paying the, the rental on those sets for about two months. And at night, when nobody was looking, Guccione went back with Giancarlo Lui and shot 12,000 feet of hardcore with some of his penthouse pets and various other extras. The penthouse pets were, except for Valerie Ray Clark, were very upset about this. They did not want to do it. They had no idea this was going to happen to them, but they were poor. 
they were in a foreign country, they didn't have money to go back home, and he was the boss, so they obeyed, which is why I'm wearing a t-shirt right now with a picture of uh, Chief Joseph on it, and underneath is a big caption, disobey, which is a good rule for living life, always disobey orders. They should have disobeyed. So he shot the infamous uh, orgy scene, the inserts that were cut into the Imperial Bordello scene. Uh, he did uh, also the infamous lesbian scene, and Laurie Wagner was not lesbian by any inclination. She did not want to do those scenes. She got plastered, drunk as could be. She was vomiting before the scenes. She, after the scenes, she would run back to her room crying. Um, so if you wondered why those scenes were not sexy or arousing when you watched them, now you know why. Now, Franco, I don't think, knew that any of this was being filmed. But when the movie was... When, when the first editor, Russell Lloyd, was finishing his work, Guccione told him, don't wrap everything up yet. I'm going to be in the editing studio to oversee some extra work. And when Guccione eventually arrived in the studio, he loved to keep people waiting. He kept them waiting for months. He brought along about a reel of hardcore inserts and went over them with Russell Lloyd and said, this is an A-plus scene. This is only a B scene. This is an A-plus star scene. This is a triple-A-plus star scene. And he, he just wanted to see the Imperial Bordello scene. That's all he watched. And he was telling Russell Lloyd, insert this here, insert that there, insert that there. And that was Guccione's uh, extent of interfering with the editing. So did the lawsuit start flying before the release, or was it after the release? Long before, back in 76. Gore was under the misimpression that it was Tinto who had changed the movie to hardcore porn, and he sued Tinto for changing the script. Uh, he also sued Franco Rossellini for continuing to use his name in the title, even though they weren't using his script. And uh, Tinto sued Gore for defamation of character, and then Roberto Rossellini sued Gore for plagiarism, saying that, he, that, Gore's, that Gore's script was identical to his own, which is totally preposterous because I've read Roberto Rossellini's script and there is no similarity whatsoever <laughs> apart from the idea that it would not all be palatial settings. It would be uh, lots of dirt and lots of dim corridors with little torches and things like that. That was the only overlap in the two. Then... When Guccione decided to fire Tinto, there was nothing Franco could do about it because Tinto wasn't Franco's employee. He sued Tinto for a breach of contract, which is also total nonsense. Tinto obeyed the contract of the letter. Tinto sued, couldn't sue Guccione because Guccione uh, was an American citizen and did not have Italian uh, domicile, so he had no standing to sue Bob Guccione, even though he was a, his employer, so he sued Franco Rossellini. Franco Rossellini integrated Bob Guccione into the lawsuit, and then there were more lawsuits back and forth between uh, the producers and, and uh, Tinto, and then after the movie was released, Bob Guccione decided to copyright the film in Penthouse's name even though it had already been copyrighted by the Berne Convention and was legally an Italian production, and never paid Franco a dime in royalties, even though Franco had funded three quarters of the film. And that led to another decade of lawsuits throughout Western Europe and the U.S. 
which Bob Kuchane won in the in the end. It sounds like the lawyers made more money than the movie made money. Absolutely. At least some of the lawyers. <laughs> some of the lawyers were never paid. The ones who were working uh, for Franco Rossellini, some of them never got paid, <laughs> which is why they deliberately lost the suits. They wanted to get rid of this thing. Um, yeah, I like what one of Guccione's lawyers, Norman Roy Grutman, said about him. Lawsuits are Bob Guccione's way of expressing himself. So Bob Guccione was spending at one time over $4 million a year on retainers and lawsuits. It was his favorite hobby. What's the story behind all of the various cuts of the film? Well, once you throw a director out of the editing room, no one knows what to make of the footage. And that's what happened here. It confused everybody. It took Russ Lloyd about a year to edit the film. Normally, it only takes a couple of weeks to edit a film. No one was satisfied with any cut. Um, Giancarlo Louis loves the original cut that was shown in New York. It's, he, he takes a lot of pride in that, but that, that could only be have a limited release. They had to cut it to an R-rated version to get a wide release. It was in violation of censor codes in most other countries, so they had to trim it there. When Franco Rossellini won a case in Italy, which was rather amazing, he won a case and got international rights to the film. He started re-editing it for television, for it had a soft version, a hard version, uh, an Italian version. It, it all depended on censors and uh, what could be released where and people trying to fiddle with it, trying to improve it. One of the interesting things about the Italian reissue is that Franco Rossellini apparently had a copy of Tinto's never completed rough cut of the film. And he instructed his editing crew to reconstruct that as much as they possibly could from the negatives. And there was very little they could do. They reconstructed a few scenes which are much smoother in the Italian reissue. But uh, a lot of the footage has gone missing since then. There's about 40 hours of raw footage that have vanished that I would give my right arm to find. So, in essence, that's it about the cuts. Just disagreements on what the movie should look like and no two censors agreeing on what's censorable. Well, there's at least two versions. I think there's two versions on that Blu-ray we talked about. And then I think there's yeah. listed on IMDb like four different cuts. So, mm-hmm. my, my question to you is, what is, if you're going to watch any of them, which one should you watch? Oh, my. <laughs> well, they're all bad in different ways. If you speak Italian, you might want to start by watching the Italian reissue called Io Caligola. But be sure you're getting an authentic copy of it. All copies of that are pirated, without exception. Um, Even there, you're going to have problems. If you just stick with the standard 156-minute cut as released in New York in February 1980, you'll at least see what audiences saw, and at least visually the quality is better than it is in the knockoffs. Then Nathaniel Thompson, the friend of mine, uh, tried to do something, and that's what's on one of the supplementary discs, or, or one of the supplements of the Blu-ray. I think on the Blu-ray it's all just on one disc. Is this alternative cut where he found one of Nino Baragli's pre-issue cuts and tried to reconstruct that as best as he could, and he tried to correct some mistakes that had never been corrected before. That's a pretty good one to start with. At least it opens with the beginning of the movie. 
And most of them, you don't see the first scene until you're about half an hour into the movie, and it's very confusing. Um, so, yeah, after saying all that, I would say start with uh, what, what's called the alternative cut or whatever it's called on the Blu-ray. That, that might be a nice introduction to the movie. What was the reaction like when this thing was released? What was the premiere like? And I mean, how did it even get out there with all these lawsuits going on? Well, it was released when there was a lull in the lawsuits and when Franco Rossellini was still under the impression that he was the producer and copyright holder, which legally he was at the time. Uh, they had already reached a settlement with Corvidal. They took his name off the title, but they did not take his name off the credits, which led Gore to be rather miserable about the movie ever since. Uh, they reached a settlement with Tinto. He saw the final cut of the movie in court and said he couldn't even recognize it as the movie he shot and said, you can put my name on it, but not as director. So they put him on as principal photography, which is essentially shot by or coordinated by or supervised by. That's what that means. So there was a lull. It opened in Manhattan at the Translux East, which was temporarily renamed the Penthouse East for obvious reasons. And it was sell out crowds almost every show for months. And after that, it was nearly sell out for the rest of the year. A person who worked on that, who coordinated the Manhattan release, was Byron Trott. And he told me a story. He said, normally when you watch a movie, you'll see that the movie attracts a particular demographic. You know, this movie attracts the middle-class family audience. This movie attracts the black audience. This movie attracts the hoods. This movie attracts the intellectuals. He said, for Caligula, that did not apply. The audience was a total mix of every demographic. He said there was nothing he had ever seen like that before or since in his life. Then it opened in Hollywood and Washington, D.C. did remarkably well. Uh, these were all at very small cinemas. Um, and they tried opening it wider, and I think it really fell off in this country from what I can gather. It still... It hit, it was on the top 50 list in variety for, I think, over a year, playing at just very few cinemas. So it was doing well, but by the time I went to see it, there was very little audience left for it. And that was at the premiere in Albuquerque. In Europe, in Germany and France and England, it was a major sensation. You couldn't keep the crowds away. One in every eight people who went to see a movie in France went to see Caligula. In Germany, it ran for, I think, a year, uh, earned over $10 million gross, I think. It did well. It did well for the most part. You talked about this trunk of stuff that you got off eBay. Uh, can you uh, discuss uh, other things that uh, came out of that and other things you found out? There were scripts in there, so I finally got to see what Gore had actually written. And the scripts that were missing, I got to see at Harvard University, where they have a Gore Vidal collection. There were bank statements, lots of correspondence with lawyers, uh, tons and tons of legal papers and legal decisions and legal arguments. We also got a crew list, although unfortunately we never got a cast list. So that's what was in those. Uh, a lot of stuff about some of Franco Rossellini's other movies. Went, and so I was eventually able to piece things together and come up with the world's very first filmography of Franco Rossellini. Um, that, was it. that was about four crates that I got. It totaled 
I think about 5,000 documents altogether. And then when I was through with that, Giancarlo Louis came through with even more. He had two more crates worth of documentation on the movie, mostly related to the protracted editing process. So I was able to decipher a lot more from that. So, yeah, to go into that in any more detail, I think, might get a little bit too tedious. I'm curious, what do your friends think about your obsession with Caligula? Well, most of my friends have never seen the movie, don't know what it is, and so I don't know what they think. We talk about other things. We talk about American Indians or local history or silent movies or 19th century American theater. So we we never get on to Caligula too much. I think some of my friends and acquaintances don't even believe I'm writing the book because I've been talking about it for 10 years and still have not published it. It's very close to the end, though. I hope to have something readable in another week or two. Um That's about it. I don't obsess on it in person too much. I've got plenty of other topics of interest. One thing I'm curious about, you know, the Italians were always so infamous for kind of taking a successful film or genre or whatever and just kind of beating it like a a dead horse. (laughs) Yes. What what about all of the kind of these clones of Caligula, like the D'Amato film and all these other things? Are you going to be kind of talking about those in your book as well? Well, considering that the book is currently 1,494 pages long, I don't think there's a call to add more to it. But, and I confess, I have not seen the D'Amato film and the other knockoffs of Caligula, except for Messalina Messalina. I have seen that. Um, I don't even know if I'm interested in watching the others. But yeah, there there were quite a few. I, I think I tabulated them somewhere. I don't think I'll put that in the book, though. Maybe a one-sentence thing somewhere towards the end. That There were lots of knockoffs, and leave it at that. But yeah, they, they do that a lot in Italy. The one, one I want to see, just out of curiosity, even though I'm sure it's bad, I know nothing else about it, was after Stanley Kubrick came out with A Clockwork Orange, someone in Italy came out with A Clockwork Banana. I'm very curious about that, but I've never seen it. That's that's interesting, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I had one question. I looked. At, I was looking at your website, and you had talked about the penthouse, um, the spread from 1980, May of 1980, I think it was. Yeah. yeah. And some of the photos that are in there of things that aren't in the film. What are some of the other things that you kind of know exist that you just have yet to find? Oh, oh, you caught me a little off guard there. There is a lot more in the victory banquet. You know, the scene where Caligula pretends to have conquered Britain and then comes back and there's this giant celebratory banquet. That scene had many more details in it. Um, There were penthouse pets who were imitating various goddesses uh, there, there was uh, some very rotund actor portraying the god uh, Bacchus, the god of revelry. And there was a very funny sequence in which Caligula plays a Simon Says game. Only this time he calls it Caligula Says. So, you know, Caligula says, stand up. Caligula says, sit down. Caligula says, toss a grape into your mouth. Stand up and then fail, fail, fail. And anyone who failed his game was guilty of treason. 
And Longinus reads out the list of those who'd failed. And the list is Latinized versions of people who were on the cast and crew of Caligula. So there's Guccionius, Francanus, Tintus, Silvamenonius, and so, so forth. And that's gone. I would love to find it. I asked Nathaniel if he could find it in the archives. He couldn't. It might be there. He didn't have time to go through all the archives. But as I say, there's 40 hours of footage that have vanished from the face of the earth. I would love to find it. If you know where it is, give me a call. You know, the site that you have is pretty amazing. And the one thing that I didn't realize is that Caligula is now a nonprofit because it's Caligula.org, correct? <laughs> I got, I wanted Caligula.com, but some porno site has that one. <laughs> so as, as soon as Caligula.org opened up, I think I got it for about $20. I said, I'm grabbing it. <laughs> so, no, it's not a nonprofit. Uh, maybe it should be some year. Uh, what I would love to do as a nonprofit, if anyone is interested, is start a Tinto Brass Foundation. He's the director of the film. Uh, he and I used to be friends. He had a cerebral hemorrhage and can no longer remember who I am. But his movies are all turning to mush. They're disappearing little bit by little bit. They're locked into vaults. They're vanishing. They're getting shredded. I would love to start a little nonprofit organization for the sole purpose of restoring his movies, including Caligula. Now, if anyone's interested in that, then we'll do a proper nonprofit.org. But no, the, the site I have, Caligula.org, is just a site. It's not a nonprofit. It's a vanity site. It's just me. It, it is a great resource, though. And what I'm amazed by is that you have so much stuff on the site that it almost seems like you wouldn't have anything for the book. But as you said, you have over 1,400 pages right now and was just wondering yeah. sort of um, how is that, you know, in terms of the status on it and uh, do you have anyone interested in putting it out? Very good question. Now, I used to work in publishing, several different publishing houses, and I know what happens when you sign a contract and you say, I will have first draft done by such and such a date. I will have the second draft done six months later. I will have the polish done three months later. I will promote the book after that. My co-author and I realized that we don't know when we will have this done. We thought that by the end of 2006, we would have a completed book that we would both be proud of. We didn't. We didn't get Franco Rossellini's collection until December 2008. And when we got that, we realized we have to junk everything we've written so far because it's all wrong. Start from scratch. Started from scratch again. We didn't speak all the languages. And so we had trouble reading all these lawsuits that were in French and Italian and Spanish and German. Uh, so it's taken us this many years just to get to those, my two favorite words in the English language, the end which I got to a year ago, and I've been polishing it ever since. As I say, I'm hoping that, that in the next week or two, I will be able to fill in the remaining few gaps and have something that I can ship off to Tinto for his review. I doubt he'll read it, but I hope he at least acknowledges it. And once we have this complete, once we're satisfied, once James and I are not... Uh, you know, arguing points back and forth once we both agree on everything. We agree on almost everything right now. Then, and only then, will we say we have a completed product that we can now sell. We will take it 
to one particular university press that I had my heart set on. If they turn it down, we'll get an agent and see what we can do. If everything else fails, we'll probably just self-publish. When that will come out, I don't know. Foreseeable future, maybe a year or two. I don't know. You said that you found some materials, like you said, on eBay, and you were able to get a hold of certain people. And I was wondering, mm-hmm. um, during the process, was Guccione any help before he died, or uh, has his archives been available to you in any way to help you put that part together? Well, I did not approach Guccione. Oddly enough, I worked for him for one day, but he never knew that. Um, that was for Omni Magazine at a little robotics show at the Albuquerque Convention Center, I think in 1984. But uh, never met him, never talked with him. I'm sure he had no idea I was doing this book. He was not a reliable source. I've read hundreds of pages of interviews he gave, and very little of it is useful. He twisted facts. He fabricated a lot of things. I I wouldn't be able to trust him. His archives, oh, I wanted to get his archives. I got some of them when those were on eBay, but then a fellow named Jeremy Frommer beat me out and had a secret negotiation with the seller and got all the rest. I've been able to see a little bit that's been posted online. It's been very helpful at reconstructing Bob Guccione's early life. There was very little in there dealing with Caligula. There was a Japanese subtitled print of the film. Um, Other than that, there was that rough cut that Jeremy Frommer was offering online for, I think, $5, and I got a copy of that. Other than that, there was almost nothing on Caligula in there. Gorby Dahl was helpful in his limited way. I got to talk with him at the end of 2006, and he was very difficult because he didn't trust me. Later on, he trusted me, and we got along just fine. But at that first interview, he didn't know what to make of me because he didn't know why anyone would want to write a book about Caligula. But he he was helpful. His memory was not the best, to put it mildly. Uh, Tinto, I can say the same thing. I only interviewed him for a few minutes about Caligula, and he really didn't want to talk about it. That was the most painful episode of his life. Uh, Giancarlo Louis has been marvelously helpful. Byron Trott was marvelously helpful. Other people involved in lower levels on the movie have been gems, given this information that's never been published anywhere. Uh, the editing crew were marvelous. So, yeah, but I never approached Guccione. Sorry. What about any of the cast? I, well, my friend James was able to interview Helen on the supplementary disc. You might have heard that. I met Helen very briefly. She did not want to talk. I met Malcolm very briefly. He did not want to talk. That's, I think that's about it for the cast. Uh, some of the penthouse pets have been very open, but not with me. They've been talking with my friend James and uh, very open with him. But no, I haven't had much luck with the cast. We've had you for an hour. Is there anything you want to add that uh, is sticking out there that maybe we forgot to ask you about? If anyone is interested in Gore or Tinto or the movie or any of Tinto's other movies or restoring things or has any leads on where missing footage might be or the Alan King show, uh, visit my site and drop me a line. I'm open.
thanks to Ranjit Sandhu for coming on the show. You can find out more about his effort to write the definitive book on the film over at our website, projection-boot.com. Now, as you heard, Caligula has a checkered editing and version history. So let's talk a little bit about some of the different versions that we watched. So we talked a little bit about this before we made the break as far as some of the differences that we saw. What were some of the other things that we saw between these two versions that are available on the DVD, even though it seems like there's even more versions that are kind of floating around out here. The uncensored cut, the longer one, which is longer only by three minutes, is the one that contains the the hardcore. And like I said, the big things in there for me was that first sort of, I guess, Garden of Eden or whatever scene ends up 56 minutes in in the alt cut. It's longer. It involves more people than just uh, Caligula and Drusilla. And um, it I, I think it works better in the alt cut than it does in the first one, although the only thing that I could say is its placement in the other version, in the unedited version, is it sets up this sort of idealized it, it looked like it was like almost like soft core you know like sort of that like vaseline on the lens kind of soft core uh <laughs> kind of scene uh with the two of them sort of in the garden of eden and maybe that's what guccione was thinking when he moved this scene was let's put them in this sort of like idyllic place and have it be all nice and and then we get into the horribleness you know this is the innocent before they become you know corrupted or something i i have no idea maybe i'm reading too much into it i find having that sequence at the beginning of the film feels completely wrong to me and placing it later actually makes it kind of poignant and disturbing i mean at the beginning it just doesn't mean anything really they're they're sitting under a tree they're hanging out it looks it looked to me like the way certain kinds of hygiene product commercials were shot in the 70s (laughs) freshers a walk through the woods on an early spring morning freshers a gentle breeze that takes you by surprise Fresh is simple with Summer's Eve. Yeah, exactly. And my friend Greg said that he remembered seeing these things when he was quite young and came away from them saying, okay, what was that commercial for and what do you do with it? And that's kind of the way I feel about that intro placement of it. It's like, what is that scene for and what are you supposed to do with it? It doesn't really suggest the Garden of Eden to me. It suggests a fantasy much more than that, but that wouldn't be Caligula's fantasy, so... I don't know. It just—it really doesn't work for me. Yeah, it doesn't work. It doesn't in the work longer... for me in either place, but especially at the beginning. Yeah, it, it doesn't work for me either. It, it's and it's—you don't know anything. Like I said, when we talked about it when we were first doing the rundown of the of the plot, we don't know if this is the first time you're watching it that it's him and his sister. So there's really—it's just him and a woman like running around, and it's like okay, <laughs> and yeah, exactly, and it, and the sheep that are going by, yeah, it just. There's so many, yeah, it, it just feels like they're trying to wedge that in at some point. It's like, what is really the point of this scene? And, you know, again, if I saw more of a relationship between he and Drusilla, I think I'd be okay with it. But it just feels like, I don't know, most of the time she feels, it seems like she's just like, oh, Caligula, you rascal, rather than there's like a real love relationship going on here. And there's kind of like, there's that discussion at one point 
where he's asking about what's it like with Marcellus, I think it is. And, you know, he's, he's so fat, but he's, uh, you know, he's, he's small in other places. And I'm thinking that that's her husband or boyfriend or something. So it's that's like, her husband. okay. So, you know, the, talk about a, a strange off screen character that we never really meet or see. And it's like, yeah, that probably would have added a little bit of tension to this whole relationship as well. Anything else about uh, these two different cuts beyond what we already discussed? Well, I would. I know that this sounds like I'm a glutton for punishment. I would actually like to see what this film could have been like because it seems like there's just so much stuff that's out there and the way that they kind of just spun it together in both of these cuts isn't really satisfying for me uh, either way. So I would like to see how Brass had originally kind of put this stuff together uh, and maybe it would have been a little bit better. The one thing that I think is really missing that we were talking about is this whole sense of humor and this playfulness because we even get that in Salon Kitty and in his earlier films and it's nowhere to be found here. It feels like the, especially the Guccione cut, it's just so dour that it's like, you know, I, I'm not turned on by the sex because it's just surrounded by the death and the mayhem and all this kind of stuff. And there's no lighter moments in this one whatsoever. And it's just like, oh my God, it just feels so oppressive as I watch this film. And actually, I'm glad that you brought up Sal and Kitty because I think that's a movie that works incredibly well. I think that, again, his use of spectacle in that is really effective. I think that his use of grotesquery in that is really effective, partly because it's not two-thirds of the film. Um, whereas in Caligula, Caligula feels very unbalanced in a lot of places. And I, I really do think that if Brass cut it himself, that wouldn't be the case. I mean, Brass has already said that you know he doesn't feel that a director's job stops when you finish shooting the movie. He said if you don't if, if you don't edit or at least supervise the editing, then you've handed off basically your vision and just let somebody do whatever they want with it. And that's not what he did normally until he got thrown off this film by Bob Guccione. So I guess at that point, just had enough of him. What's interesting, too, the way that they shot this, the one story that everybody can seem to agree on is the way that this was filmed, and that is with multiple cameras, at least four cameras going all at once with zoom lenses on them. So you never knew as an actor if you were in close-up, if you were in a long shot, you know exactly where the cameras were, how they should be. So they really concentrated more on the acting for each other than necessarily acting for the camera. And I know, you know, Helen Mirren has been in uh, Altman films, and she said that it's very similar the way that Altman would shoot, and we know that he loved the zoom lens and everything. So I think that having these four different takes of every single scene, totally, you know, that that's where I can really see Brass kind of shining, is being able to have that in his head of exactly what was going on and how he wants this to cut together. And, you know, the, the cameramen were given a little bit of leniency as far as where they wanted to be and what they wanted to shoot. So you're right, as far as this film really could have been made in the editing editing room, and instead it feels like it was kind of undone in the editing room. And also I think that the fact that Brass chose to shoot with four cameras simultaneously was just really smart given the sheer magnitude of those set pieces. 
you wouldn't want to have to do one of them again. No. Because you realize, I, I need a different angle on this. I think it was much more efficient filmmaking, even though it seems like, you know, you got four cameras running. Do you really need that? Much more efficient than spending a lot of time realizing, oh, I should have done this. Now, how am I going to compensate? And it's also more tinsel-brass because I think it contributed to that atmosphere that this was just some gigantic runaway train on some anarchic trip to who the hell knows where. I think he wanted that because I think he felt that if that were the atmosphere on the set, it would be reflected in the actor's performances. I mean, he didn't shoot Sal and Kitty that way. That was a very controlled film. So it's not just that that's the way he rolls. I also think that may have added an extra element into allowing someone like Guccione to go in and really mess with it. Because if you had that much footage, instead of going, okay, this is all I'm going to shoot, and this is how it needs mm-hmm. to be put together, it's a lot easier for someone to go in, tear it apart, and move it all around like you know Lego bricks. Yeah, there are some directors who shoot almost one-to-one just with that idea of nobody can mess around with my film <laughs> because this is all that you have. Exactly. And again, so not Tinto Brass, because even on a movie where he was quite controlled in what he was shooting, he still wanted a lot of everything, just the way he was. So we're going to take another break and play an interview with writer-director Alexander Tushinsky, who's written an extensive analysis of what it would take to recreate Caligula to the vision of its original director, Tinto Brass. My name is Alexander Tuschinski. I live in Germany. I'm actually a student at University of Stuttgart. I used to study at Stuttgart Media University and graduated there in 2011. And parallel to my studies, I've been doing feature films for a few years that you know won awards in American film festivals. And I'm currently filming my most recent film, Timeless, that features actors like Angus McFadyen, Harry Lennox and Rick Shapiro. So that's pretty exciting for me. And next to doing these films, I uh, like to research old films with an interesting history, so to say, and films that I think have a significant artistic value. During this research, I found out about Caligula and about Tinto's early films, about the early films of Tinto Brass. So what did you think the first time that you saw Caligula? (laughs) Good question. (laughs) I think I couldn't sit all the way through, actually. I felt the film was extremely dark and depressing. That was my first feeling about the film. But I felt already that that was a very strange discrepancy uh, between the editing and the cinematography and the acting. It It felt very uneven to me. That's the best description. But I found out about about the history, so I got interested very much and started researching it. Basically, the big paper I wrote about Caligula, that was my graduation thesis at Stuttgart Media University, Hochschule der Medien Stuttgart, as it's called in German. I decided to write about it because I... Uh, like the early films of Tinto Brass very much. Tinto Brass is today mainly known for his erotic films that came after Caligula. But in the 1960s and early 70s, he was regarded as a good avant-garde experimental director. So he did films like La Vacanza that won uh, the prize for the best Italian film at Venice Film Festival or Lurlo, which was screened at Berlin Film Festival 1970. And he was actually 
asked to direct a Clockwork Orange in the late 60s. So he had a pretty good career and his editing style and the style, the cinematography of his films, I liked a lot. And so I figured, wait, Caligula would have been Tintor's biggest film in terms of a cast, in terms of sets, just in all terms. How would that have been like if Tintor would have made it, if Tintor would have been allowed to edit it? You know, Tintor filmed it, but he wasn't allowed to finish the editing. I was really curious about that and started to research it and write my graduation thesis. And I've been very interested in it even after writing the thesis. I've updated it a few times so to include newest research. Now, how did you go about researching this? Because it seems like you could get really lost really quick. <laughs> that's that's true. You know, a friend of mine in L.A. is researching the whole history of the film, you know, from the earliest ideas until, you know, distribution and all that. And he's been writing a book about this for years. Basically, I focus solely on the film as Tinto would have finished it if he would have been allowed to edit it so basically it, it was actually very tough and i updated my thesis quite a few times because there are some versions of the screenplay but tinto didn't stick to the script and the cast didn't stick to the script precisely you know they improvised on set and sometimes scenes are written very briefly but then they are so interesting visually so basically, I started with the screenplays and the film we know, and I tried to find every version of the film ever released, even very, very obscure ones that have not really been officially released. You know, I even bought a 35 millimeter print of an Italian edit of the film, Yo Caligola, to confirm if there's one shot in the beginning of one scene. And then I found parts of Tinto's work print that were released as a bonus on the American DVD edition and some parts of other edits. It was really tough, actually, and it took a few years to get it right. Not only are you looking at all these versions of the film, you're tracking down all these different versions of the film, but then how did you get access to some of the script materials as well? Uh, it's interesting. My friend, a fellow researcher, Ranjit, who I believe is also on this episode, told me about uh, some screenplays that were in... Uh, Harvard University Library, actually. So there I found the script, and he actually did some tremendous work on comparing the different script versions. And it's difficult, you know, because when Tinto, uh, Tinto got to edit about 60, 70 minutes of the film, I believe it might even be 80. It was definitely quite a lot. And then he was not allowed to continue, and the whole film was taken apart and edited anew, but parts of his work print survived. So basically, that was the first my first idea. I tried to put together the parts of the work print I could find to compare Tintor's style to the style of the final film. And then it's mainly trying to find footage for all the scenes, comparing them to the screenplay to see if Tinto did them like in the screenplay or if Tinto departed from the screenplay. And I'm also friends with Tinto. I became friends with Tinto and showed him my work a few times. And he told me a few things which were very interesting. I love the work that you did with the whole matching up of the splice marks and all that. How was that trying to figure out where things were originally by even going back to the splices? That was a, that was a very spontaneous idea because... 
uh, in the booklet to the American DVD, they say, oh, we found this black and white footage from Tinto's film, but it was just a random assembly of shots. You know, back then in 2007, the person who wrote the booklet just thought Tinto spliced shots together randomly to edit them later. So, But then I figured out, wait a second, these shots, let's try to put them in order to see how Tinto would have edited them. And then I tried to put them in order, and I suddenly saw that the splice marks matched. And then that's when I found out that actually Tinto had finished editing these scenes. And after he was removed from the production, they were taken apart again. So with the help of the splice marks, I was actually able to put together quite a few scenes. But it was really hard work, you know, like doing a very strange puzzle. Especially some of the montages are, of course... Uh, obvious, you know, you see first this person walks from left to right, cut to a different angle, that makes sense. But some of the, sh the shots were meant to be edited, almost, I would say, like Eisenstein's intellectual montages. So there's no immediate relation to the shots. The relation comes through the editing. So I had a lot of shots that I just had to try out. Does this splice mark match this or this or this or this? This took quite a while. How did you meet Tinto? I was in Los Angeles in 2011 or 2012, I don't remember exactly, and I had a few copies of my bachelor thesis with me, and just in case I thought if I meet anybody who's interested. And so then I saw there was a screening of, I think it was a Clockwork Orange with Malcolm McDowell in attendance. So I thought, hey, I have to give Malcolm McDowell a copy of this thesis because he's obviously he's playing the main character, Caligula. So let's see what he thinks. And, you know, after the screening, he was swarmed with people who wanted autographs. And I approached him and gave him the thesis. And yeah, he thanked me very much. And there was another screening a few days later where he was. And there I actually met a friend of Malcolm's who had heard about the thesis and said, well, you should, should give Tinto a call. Here's Tinto's number. So <laughs> then I called Tinto and sent him the thesis via mail and he liked it. And I visited him, I visited him in Rome quite a few times since then. And we've become good friends, not only about Caligula, but I've also done quite a lot about his earlier films, his 1960s films. So what did he think about your thesis paper? Uh, he liked it very much. I remember he was uh, very impressed by it. And uh, last year I visited him and showed him, you know, I made an assembly of the film, as I would think Tinto would have done it. And he was very impressed by that as well. So he's, I can tell you he's happy that uh, people still try to figure out what his original ideas for the film were, because they are so different from the film we all know. It must have been interesting doing all this research on this and then actually meeting the man who was partially responsible for what we ended up seeing. Did he have a lot of corrections for you? And not very much, actually. He was just... Oh, that's great. It was very interesting. He really liked it. You know, he really likes my editing style. I did a film uh, called Breakup, which will be out this year, and I showed him that as well, and I interviewed him for the making of, and he kept praising my editing style. So I think we just have uh, very similar styles in general. Uh, so I was editing um, what I found of Caligula more or less like I would edit it, you know, pretty quick edits and using the camera angles. And he liked that. The one thing he said, actually, 
there was one sequence he was missing that had not been in any screenplay, and there is no still from it. So he said, where's the sequence when Caligula uh, removes the, the heads from the statues of the gods? There's one scene where Caligula replaces the statues' heads with his own. So basically the statues of the Roman gods, and we see a scene that their heads are missing, and Caligula is putting his own head, you know, a stone hats that resemble him on the statues and Tinto was really curious why is this scene missing where Caligula uses the machine to remove the statues hats and I had never heard of such a scene and I found no record of such a scene so that was interesting that was his main correction but there's no material for such a scene out there no material release that I could use it seems like when I have been doing this research that there's a lot of memories about the film that may or may not be true it seems that everybody kind of has their own recollection of the making of it and the what was there what wasn't there i mean how did you kind of sort through all of that material it's actually very interesting because i even have an example in one interview with tinto he did a few years ago um he's he's talking about how caligula rides on his horse into the Senate and Caligula is sitting backwards. So the horse is riding and Caligula is sitting there and we see the horse's back, you know. And it was strange because that's not in that scene and I saw that it's in another scene. So that's a little bit how the memory, how he mixed up two scenes in his memory. And basically I tried to go with primary sources. That means the footage. If I have any footage for the scene, that's the main guideline, you know, because that's obviously what was shot on the set. So it's footage or stills. It's very interesting. Uh, there's one scene in the end of the film with the brothel ship. In the final film, it runs for, I don't know, 12 minutes or something with a lot of hardcore footage put in there. But in Tintos edit, that was a very humorous scene. And it's interesting because in the screenplay, it mentions that everybody is standing still. Caligula is walking up the ship he looks around and then he's, he shouts action and everybody starts moving, which is quite a funny and surrealistic moment. And I found the footage of, Calig of everybody standing still. I first thought it was some kind of rehearsal because I thought nobody is moving. Maybe they have the camera running before the director shouts action. Then I found the footage of Malcolm McDowell standing there in the midst of the people shouting something. And then I saw in the making of of Caligula that was released in the 80s, there's some footage of this brothel ship and we hear in the background Malcolm McDowell shouting action. So I knew, okay, the scene was actually done that way. But I tried to focus on actual material from the set, either be they still images, be it footage that we have in some version of the film or even records in the screenplay. The screenplay that... Ranjit found in Harvard actually includes handwritten annotations and we both suspect it's words written on the words spoken of the on the set basically somebody if there were some changes somebody wrote down okay we spoke it on the set this way and so far by the footage that I found mainly confirms that that screenplay includes a very accurate transcription. Yeah, because not only are you dealing with what you're seeing, but also what you're hearing or not hearing. The whole idea of you kind of going back and reading the lips of these characters to see how the dialogue changes because of all the post-dubbing is rather remarkable as well. It's very difficult because some of the dubbing, 
that seems so convincing, you know. And actually, for example, the scene when Nerva dies, that sequence, I never suspected that it had been changed in post-production. I mean, you've, you've certainly watched the film, so you know that sequence, Nerva is lying there in the bathtub dying. But actually, I found it into a rough cut, and I found the screenplay, and the whole dialogue was very, very, very different. And the editing that the editors after Tinto left did was very creative to simplify the dialogue a lot and remove some of the main points. Just an example, in that scene originally, Tiberius asks Nerva, why do you commit suicide? And Nerva says, you see, if power corrupted a great man like you, Tiberius, it will certainly corrupt this young man who has learned nothing but how to be your slave, which makes sense and sounds reasonable. In the final film that was widely released, Tiberius asks him why... Uh, do you commit suicide? And Nerva says, old man can sometimes see the future. <laughs> and from evil's past and evil's yet to come, I now choose to escape. It's a very significant change because, again, it was more about the nature of power that corrupts people. While now it's pretty generic, you know, uh, old man can sometimes see the future and Caligula will be horrible, basically. So I know you're currently working on Timeless, but yet you said that you've gone back and worked on the Caligula piece even more since you've you've kind of finished it, you turned it in, you graduated, all that. It doesn't seem like this research is ever going to stop for you. That's a good point. You know, the more material uh, I find, the more accurate I can make this thesis. And the thing is, for example, there was one edit of the film uh, released last year that included a few moments uh, that actually showed uh, one scene better, you know, some footage from one scene. So I had to correct something in my thesis because my thesis, I I suspected it being done in a certain way. And now I found out, yes, it was done that way. So I included it in, in the thesis. I feel the way it's right now, so if you read it right now, there will not be any big surprises anymore about Tinto's version of the film. Basically, we might find more footage and it might make the whole thing more detailed. But I think by now I figured out the general gist of what Tinto's film would have been like. If nothing new gets released, I will not write any more on it. But if new material gets released, I'll certainly review it and but it was a long work, and truly, for the past two years, I, it never felt like it ended. You know, if I found out something, it threw around some other theories. You know, for example, I found out how Tinto's rough cut had been edited, and by matching the splice marks, then I found out in the Italian film Yo Caligola, it's the Italian edit, some scenes actually match Tinto's rough cut. So apparently, they had access to Tinto's rough cut. So I figured whatever scene we have in Yo Caligola that's different from the American edit must derive from Tinto's rough cut at least in big, to a big extent and so I started reviewing that and yeah, it was a long time So you're editing the paper but are you also going back and, and still working on the actual edit of the film that you've been doing? Actually uh, if new material turns up I would but I think by now I basically used all the material that was released. So I think there's no version of the film that I've not seen now. So I really included whatever moment I could find. And it's interesting, you know, this edit of the film, a handful of people have seen it because obviously it's for academic research. It's not for general release. 
you know, if I wanted to screen it to many people, I would have to clear the rights. You know, it's just a, a private thing. And basically, I tried to reconstruct Tintos Cut wherever possible. If Tintos Cut wasn't available, I tried to edit something that looks like Tinto would have done it. And if no material was available, I used stills and explaining texts, a little bit like the Metropolis restoration before a new version of Metropolis was discovered a few years ago. There was this restoration with a lot of stills and explaining texts where material was missing. And if the chance arises, I, you probably saw the video I did with Tinto in Rome where we talk about the film. So if anybody was interested uh, to pay a full restoration, Tinto and I would really like to go back to the material that's probably still in Penthouse's archive and try to reconstruct the film properly. But that's a hypothetic possibility if someone was interested. The film that Tinto wanted to do was very, very, very different from the film that is known today. You know, the film was very political and actually very funny in many scenes. In many scenes, it reminds me of even Monty Python as humor, when you watch the film as it's released now, you probably wonder where could any humor be in it. But basically, the editors chose to delete jokes, make scenes moving much slower, redupt the lines in a more serious tone, you know, so to make the whole thing a drama. And actually, I believe if the film would have been released the way Tinto wanted to edit it, it would have been had a very different impact. It would have been known as a, you know, an extreme political film, you know, maybe even an important political film about the nature of power. And I think Tinto's reputation would have been very, very different if people would know the film he wanted to do. How did uh, this whole debacle with Caligula, how did that affect him? It's very difficult to say. I think one thing is that people saw Caligula and probably didn't understand his involvement. You know, he went to court, so they delete his directing credit. Opening credits, it says, Principal Photography by Tinto Brass, Editing by the Production. So there's actually no director mentioned, because Tinto didn't regard the film as his, the way it's edited. Uh, so, But still, I think many people think, oh, Caligula, that's a film by Tinto Brass. And I think, you know, he did, uh, his career changed, so he did a lot of erotic films in the 80s. He did one film called Action in 1979, 1980, that he paid for himself. That's not really an erotic film. It's more going back to his early experimental style, but I don't think it was a commercial success. Then he did the film The Key, La Chiave, which is an erotic film. And I believe after that, people probably associated him you know, with Caligula, the way it was released, with Lachiave, so he got to do more erotic films. I don't know. I think his career might have been different if Caligula would have been edited by him and released that way. But I'm not certain, because when you talk to him, he says this progression to erotic films for him was natural, because before that, he did films that were about revolution in a society, tried to make people see all the social things that are wrong. And then he went to the revolution of the individual, you know, individuals revolting against society's sexual morals, or so to say. So he himself says his career is basically a natural progression. So I don't really know. So I can only speculate. Erotic films that he made afterwards, did they have political overtones to them or were they pretty much just erotica? Uh, it's difficult to say because I have not researched them in detail. You know, my main interest is basically Tintos films, let's say until 
action or Lucky Ave. Lucky Ave, that's an erotic film from 83. That actually still has a lot of political overtones. It's set in Italy right before Italy enters World War II. And, and the, story, the main storyline uh, crosses with a lot of political things of that era. The later erotic films, I'm not certain. I've watched them, but I've not rewatched them multiple times. I would say if they have political overtones, they're definitely much, much, much less pronounced than in his earlier works. And they're much less experimental in cinematography and editing than his early films. What's very interesting about Caligula, the way Tinto planned it, is that he switches gears, I would say, every scene. So it turns from a drama in one scene to sometimes even a slapstick comedy-like thing in the other scene. And especially, the th you know, the topic of Caligula, as Tinto planned it, is basically that Caligula first explores his unlimited power and just... He, Tinto says he dem he likes to deconstruct the state like a child deconstructs his toy. You know, he's doing all these horrible things. Nobody stops him. And then in the third part of the film, w the last third, which is almost entirely missing from the final film, uh, in that part, Caligula realizes, wait a minute, the senators, they don't speak up against my madness. And they just want a good life for themselves. They don't try to... Uh, rule the people, you know, to speak for the people. They just say yes to whatever I say. So he tries to provoke them with more and more absurdist actions. And that's when the film gets really, really interesting, I think. A lot of scenes that you cannot find in the final film. For example, one film, Caligula is taking donations for his war on Britain, and it's just like a slapstick comedy. It's basically silent, there's funny music playing, and the motion is slightly sped up, and Caligula and his bodyguard are running and collecting coins, and Longinus is standing there and smiles, but isn't feeling comfortable about this, and Caligula asks him for coins. It's just very funny in parts. The topic of the film as it was released, I feel, is just a crazy emperor doing horrible things and then getting killed for it. While the film that Tinto wanted to do had this political message, you know, that Caligula saw that these politicians rule for themselves and for their own good, not for the good of the people. They don't care if the emperor is doing crazy things as long as not, they are not bothered. It's also this scene with the imperial bordello, this brothel ship, you know, Caligula forces the senator's wives to be prostitutes. In the context of Tinto's film, he does this to provoke them. He expects some kind of reaction from them. But then in Tinto's edit, we would have seen that they are actually laughing and enjoying themselves on this ship, which is bringing Caligula's plans at absurdum because he thought, that, you know, making the senator's wives prostitutes, that's going to force a reaction. But no, we see everybody is going with it. Everybody is going to enjoy themselves. Bob Guccione refilmed some shots on the same set of women looking shocked, you know, because they're forced to work there, which is more realistic in that context. But Tinto wasn't striving for realism. In some scenes, he was striving for almost surrealism or absurdism. So... Yeah, when I read about that sped-up scene in your paper, I was like, this would not have fit tonally at all. I mean, <laughs> maybe with the with the version that, that you're saying that Tinto directed, yes, but the one that is out there now, oh my gosh, just would have been like the laughing stock. <laughs> I can tell. That's the interesting thing. Why 
uh, when I tell people about this, they mostly don't even believe me that such a thing could have fit into the film. Just the re-editing of the film, uh, I think whoever re-edited the film, uh, Ranjit can probably tell you more about that. There were multiple editors involved. They were very good at what they are doing because they transfer. Please don't just use the quote, they were very good at what they are doing, but I tell you why they were good at what they are doing because they transformed more or less comedic film that definitely has a tongue-in-cheek tone in many scenes. They transformed it into something very, very serious and in a way that people will not guess that it was meant to be funny in parts. So now if you think a sped-up scene with comedy, if you just insert this in the film we know now, it would look completely out of place. It would just appear random. But in Tinto's edit, you know, many scenes were just moving a lot quicker. Tinto would have used different music with the film, make it less dramatic with the music. And there were things, we see a serious scene and then we cut away to someone who's standing there and smiling and suddenly the whole thing gets less serious. You know, in the scene in the beginning, Tiberius has this pool and it's, it's a very dark scene. But if you look at the footage a Tintor shot, there were shots of these people just laughing, you know, and enjoying themselves, again, making the mood lighter. So I find it's impossible to actually imagine what Tintor's version would have been like without seeing it. That's a ver something very sad, I think. You know, you can read my thesis and you can get some impression, but if you actually see it, the whole style would have been very, very, very different from what we know. You know, the ed editors who assembled the final film, Tinto's rough cut, as I said, was a little more than an hour long. They just disassembled it and started editing anew, using different shots, different takes. And I, I'm not actually certain about that, but I think Tinto did different takes, trying out different tones even. And when he chose the funnier one, the other editors who came after him chose the serious one. And so... And the whole film is vastly changed. A common misconception or misperception is a lot of people think that all that Bob Guccione did was take Tintor's film and put in hardcore pornography. But that's not the case. Even if you take the film that's out there now and remove the hardcore pornography, it's not at all what Tintor wanted, not even remotely. <laughs> So I know you're currently working on Timeless, that you took the, the morning off to talk to me for about this Caligula yeah. project. Tell me more about the film. What is it about, and when can we expect to see it? So Timeless, it's basically a film that doesn't have a particular genre. It, in general, it's, it's going to be funny, but... You know, my I, my attitude is basically, I think, real, real life knows no genre. We can have very funny situations, very dramatic situations. So I try to make the film like that. It's about a young man, Arnold, who uh, is in 1932, who's having a normal day in 32, and suddenly he disappears in a flash and appears in today's world. And um, first he meets an independent artist who takes... Uh, Arnold to his house and says, okay, you can live here. We'll try to figure out what happened to you. And the first half is actually pretty uh, funny. It almost reminds of a, of a slapstick comedy. But then a totalitarian regime is rising. And the second half is more or less of, about a question, should we start a revolution against a totalitarian regime? Or is it a bad thing to do a violent revolution because then you're just using the same means as this totalitarian regime? But all, you know, I would say in a very quick-moving, non-preachy way. And I, I think it'll be out in 
next year or the year after because it's going to be so big the film there will be so many days of shooting my goal is to make it by spring 2016 but if we're quick we can do it by summer 2015 so i'll see about that and basically it's again a film about the nature of power about the nature of totalitarian thought which I believe is very dangerous, you know, and it's very easy to just start thinking, okay, I know how things are supposed to be done. Everybody else has to do them like I think, or they're no good. You know, I think that's the source of totalitarian thought. When you start thinking that you know better than the others and they must follow you, you know. I'm sure it's no coincidence that he comes from 1932. Yeah, definitely not a coincidence (laughs) because it's interesting. German society in 1932 Actually, uh, if pe- when people living in that year, many would never believe what Germany would turn into so soon, you know. And I find that very interesting how in the Weimar Republic, obviously there were these political extremists, and yet many people believed that they are not going to be dangerous, you know. And when Hitler was uh, made chancellor, Reichskanzler, Still many people believed, okay, he, now he'll, we'll see, everybody will see that he's up to no good or that he has no idea what he's doing and he'll be gone in a few weeks. So, and that's the thought, basically, because in 1932, this character disappears and he's shocked to learn in present time what happened in the Nazi era. But he knows he cannot really go back and stop it because that's the problem with time travel. You know, if he went back and stopped the Nazis, it would all change the time continuum. So how could he now be today in today and see that the Nazis happened? So it's going to be quite philosophical in parts too, especially about that. What is dangerous? You know, if you see such thoughts emerging, should you take it seriously? Shouldn't you take it seriously? And basically the whole story of the film is set in a fictional present they where these where a new very fictional totalitarian regime rises yeah that's also many people don't really take seriously so it mirrors the developments in the 30s it's kind of a small world you've got uh, harry lennox in your film and we've got him on the show in just a few weeks really yeah <laughs> that's not, harry and i have been good friends for a few years so. i can only say the very very best about him i've you know, he's extremely professional and he's very generous to his friends. You know, I've never, I've never heard him say anything negative about anybody. Uh, he's just a gentleman. He helped me a lot with this film that he wanted to be in the film, you know, because we are friends. He said, okay, just do it. Uh, let's do this. So, Alexander, where's the best place for people to kind of learn more about you and keep up with all your projects? Ah, that's, I think it's both my website, Alexander. Uh, hyphen tushinsky.de and actually on facebook you know i really i do my facebook site more as a let's say public thing so i don't really talk about my private life there so if people like me and would like to learn more they can just add me on facebook i'm there and i'm i like meeting new people <laughs> so both my website and facebook and i update my imdb very regularly so that should always be up to date All 
right. Thanks to Alexander Tuchinsky for coming on the show. You can find out more about his work over at our website, projection-booth.com. Now, Caligula as a character has appeared in a lot of other places. Let's talk about a few of the films and shows that use this kind of wicked emperor. I will start things off by saying that I rewatched the episode of Xena Warrior Princess yesterday with Caligula in it, um, who's kind of crazy, but, you know, he, he wants to be a god and he's manipulating Aphrodite and, and Ares. And it was really nice to see Kevin Smith, the actor that played Ares, um, again, because I haven't seen him, well, since he unfortunately passed away years and years ago. But it was nice to see the show again, um, even though there was some pretty embarrassing dancing by Gabrielle going on in that episode. Very nice. Very nice. Well, I sat down and watched, uh, as far as I know, the only actor who's played Caligula twice in two movies. And it was The Robe and then Demetrius and the Gladiators. Now, The Robe came out in 1953, Demetrius and the Gladiators, 1954, the sequel. And Caligula was played by an actor by the name of Jay Robinson, who has a pretty high and reedy voice. Uh, I would say he's almost kind of flamboyant. I don't necessarily know if uh, the character of Caligula in these films would qualify for maybe something like the celluloid closet. I think it's kind of on the border there. They're not cheering. Do you notice it, Claudius? Yes, sir. Your threat against them was posted on the gate as they came in. And they dare take offense. I've pampered them long enough. But as for the robe, it is a biblical film, features Jesus, uh, but this is more about the effect that those who saw the crucifixion and what kind of an effect it had on them, as opposed to getting you know, the Sermon on the Mount and all that stuff. And what it is, it's Marcellus and Diana. They're a couple. They're Romans. And Marcellus gets sent off by Caligula to go to the Holy Land. He ends up taking part in the crucifixion and the nailing in, along with his slave, Demetrius, played by Victor Mature. And they end up basically being in awe of this person that they had to put up on the cross and then become Christians. And they end up back in Rome, to which Marcellus and Diana... Um, I guess you would say a minister and evangelize to Caligula. He doesn't want to hear it. And he has them killed as martyrs. It's mostly the story of the idea of those early Christians and how it was hard to be a Christian in that era of Rome. Now, Demetrius and the Gladiators uh, actually has more to do with the robe than the robe does. The robe being the robe that Christ wore um, and then was taken from him, then he was nailed to the cross. So this becomes a holy relic and plays a major part in Demetrius and the Gladiators, in which Caligula wants the robe, and he believes that the robe will give whoever wears it eternal life. That's the robe. Give it to me. So Demetrius is now a Christian, as he was at the end of the first film. He's back in Rome. He ends up in Gladiator School, which is run by a relatively young Ernest Borgnine, and he um, then becomes disenchanted with being a Christian because he asked God's help to intervene on the uh, on someone's behalf. It doesn't happen, and that innocent person ends up suffering. And he turns against uh, being a Christian for a while, and eventually uh, does come back to the fold. Ends up getting Caligula the robe, but. The robe doesn't have the magic powers that uh, Caligula thought it would have. See, what he should have done was gone after the spear that, that pierced 
Christ when he was on the cross, the whole Spear of Destiny, which was almost the subject for Raiders of the Lost Ark, but they changed it to the Ark of the Covenant. So there's this whole thing about the Spear of Destiny and, and Longinus, another Longinus, I guess that was a popular name, and how he you know used that spear. And that would have given Caligula power, the kind of power that Adolf Hitler wanted and all this kind of stuff. So that would have been a much different movie had he just gone after the spear and not the robe. Now, Demetrius and the Gladiators, I would say, is also a biblical epic, although Jesus really doesn't play a role. St. Peter plays a role, and he's the one who has the robe and gives it to Demetrius, and there's this whole back and forth about you know, being a Christian and the challenges of being a Christian, even though you don't get what you want when you ask you know, for help. So much like the first film is about maintaining your faith in the face of tyrants, I would say that the second film is a philosophical sequel in maintaining your faith when even it appears that God or Jesus is against you. So um, I became aware of this use of Caligula, not because I had seen these films before, but because our good friend who was on the um, Equinox episode, Doc Waffles, our uh, Detroit rapper and rare book dealer, uh, often references and uses um, pulls from Demetrius and the Gladiators in several of his songs. So he has an interest in using Caligula, and especially this version of Caligula, played by Jay Robinson, is part of his, uh, I guess, imagery within his own rap music. Now, I don't mean to be a stickler, but I will be. I don't think that Caligula was actually the emperor when Jesus was around. So I think it was actually Tiberius, and I think it was kind of Caesar Augustus to begin with, and then Tiberius. So I don't think Caligula was really in the position of power uh, yet. So um, I discredit your entire robe well, film series. Well, take it up with uh, 20th Century Fox. They made these movies. They made a lot of money, so that's why they made the sequel. And um, I think he's a stand-in just for evil Roman empire, uh, evil Roman emperor. And I think that Caligula would have been a name that people may have known would have been a little bit more evil than, say, if we would have had Augustus or Tiberius. Uh, there is no mention of Pilate in any of this stuff, but um, it's it, you know they're not bad. They're big epic films, you know, shot in cinemascope and. I actually think The Robe was the first CinemaScope film. I think uh, some of the advertising around it was about how it was, you know, you didn't need 3D glasses to see this big, massive uh, spectacle. I saw The Robe when I was in high school. Somehow, in my World's Religions class, I volunteered or chose to read the book, and the book was drier than dirt. It was just, yeah, I couldn't do it. So I ended up doing the high school thing and trying to watch the movie, and I understand the book from the from the film and even the film i was just like wow at least the only thing i can really say about it is at least that was kind of my first exposure to victor mator i think it's underrated i think he's a pretty good actor in both films i think he was really good and i think that he was fantastic in kiss of death well there's no question about that he was great and then it took me a little while to finally see nightmare alley another great one i would recommend kiss of death and nightmare alley as a, as a double feature more than the robe and Demi and the gladiators, but that's just me. 
I have no interest in watching The Robe or Demetrius and the Gladiators again. I just watched them because they were related to Caligula. I understand. Now, did you watch I, Claudius? I've seen I, Claudius, the BBC TV series from the mid-70s. John Hurt plays Caligula, but I did not watch it for this, so I, I my memory is fuzzy, but I remember seeing it years ago. I really want to see that. I have never seen it. I know that my friend Rich saw the entire thing years ago. We had it on video at Blockbuster. It took up an entire shelf with all the episodes, but I still haven't sat down and watched it. I really want to, especially now because I, I went and I watched this thing called The Epic That Never Was, and it was an early attempt to make a film version of I, Claudius with uh, Charles Lawton as Claudius, and it was directed by Eric von Stroheim, and uh, they only have like a real handful of scenes. I'm not exactly sure how much of it was done before uh, Merle Oberon had a really bad car accident, and they basically canceled the entire production. But um, the scenes that I saw were really nice, and I really would have liked to have seen um, Lawton as Claudius in this, and he really brought some... I mean, he he made um, you know the Hunchback such a memorable character, and I think he would have brought that same gravitas to this role. Oh, he was amazing also in... Um Spartacus. Yes. So just consider the the character that he had in Spartacus, what he could have done. The, the the one thing that's interesting about the robe and more so Demetrius and the Gladiators when we talk about Claudius as a character is he's much more intelligent in Demetrius and the Gladiators than he is in Caligula. In Caligula, he's treated as some sort of like drooling idiot. And in Demetrius and the Gladiators, he has a line in there where he says, yeah, I've been playing dumb for a while uh, around Caligula, but now I can kind of assert myself and and do more. And it's kind of, it, it's kind of interesting when you look at the characterization of, of how they use Claudius in those, between those two films. Yeah, there's a great scene of Lawton as Claudius where he's basically like, you know, everyone's making fun of him because he's got one leg that's shorter than the other and he's got a uh, a stammer and he gets up there and basically reads everyone in the, sen- the Senate. You know, he's just like, well, I could be like you and I could be this and that. The other thing, and he just like goes through and just throwing shade everywhere and it is uh, really this redemptive scene. Yes. Very cool. All right. <laughs> Very cool indeed. So other places where Little Boots shows up. Um, you sent me Caligula's Spawn. I did not get a chance to watch it. <laughs> you are a much better man for it. We watch Caligula's Spawn's this 2009 uh, porn film. And uh, because Caligula ended up spurring this kind of cottage industry of of copycat films and kind of like how Salon Kitty was in the midst of this Nazi exploitation era of, of films, uh, Caligula kind of kicked off this whole idea of, um, you know, Romans and this whole debauchery and all this stuff. So like Joe D'Amato and all these people were making Caligula films, just kind of throwing Caligula into titles of random things. Caligula spawned 2009, so we're definitely well past the Caligula exploitation phase. But the, again, they're kind of trying to use this, um, you know, as the titillation, and just you know, we've got a lot of togas, so let's throw these on, and we'll make a porn film. Um, I watched maybe ten minutes of it, and you know, we talked about how bad the acting was in the Anima Bandit a few weeks ago when we were watching um, Water Power and uh, tried to watch that quote-unquote follow-up film. 
This makes the acting in the Enema Bandit seem Oscar worthy. It oh. is horrible. Oh. I I couldn't do it. And then the I mean, I watched like literally I watched 10 minutes of it. I was able to sit through the the Enema Bandit. I was not able to sit through this. And it starts with this woman who's whipping this other woman and stuff and just the sound effects of the whip and it's like you're not even hitting this girl with this whip and yet it's like whoosh, whoosh. Wow. <laughs> wow. <laughs> And, and you know, she's talking and talking and talking and just such a horrible – I don't know if she was putting on an accent or if she just was ESL. But it's like, oh, God, please just, just shut up. Just do something. <laughs> Baltica is known well in Rome and in other parts of the empire for cheap slaves. From now on, my mark – will be carried not only by cheap peasant girls, but also of those of higher breeding. Make sure it happens, and happens soon. Now go. It was bad. So, And yet you make it sound worth watching just for its awfulness. Ah, yeah, I think had I had a few in me and some friends over, it probably would have been a good party film. Nice. So did you watch Messalina, Messalina, anyone? I'm afraid I didn't because to perfectly honest, I don't like, like those big sword and sandal epics, even when they're scurrilous. So just not my thing. I tried watching it the entire films out on YouTube, but um, wasn't able to really find the time to, to watch it. And plus, I didn't really hear anything good about it before I, I tried watching it. Yeah, I, I didn't get a chance to watch it either. All right, but, we'll cut that whole thing out. But I did play the video game online. What is Viva Caligula, the video game from Adult Swim? Well, Viva Caligula, the video game from Adult Swim, is, and this is their description, paint Rome red as you control Emperor Caligula in a violent and decadent rampage through the city. Slice and dice your way through your citizenry with 26 different collectible weapons, one for every letter of the alphabet, and gain access to an orgy where pain and pleasure are brought to new heights. I lasted for just a few minutes, and then I got bored. It kind of reminds me of Postal, but with togas. All right. <laughs> but, although, as so, we, but although, as we were talking before, um, I, I think Maitland has an idea on how to make this even a better video game. Oh, right. Yeah, the sexual debauchery game. Yeah, extra points for being more depraved than anybody could ever have imagined. Yeah, that, that might be fun, but definitely not something everybody could get his or her hands on. Mostly his, I would suspect. But. Of course, we'll include a link to where you can play this uh, free video game over at projection-booth.com. Just think of it as Death Race 2000 with a lot of dead people. So is there anything else we should talk about Caligula? The costumes no. are really great. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I love that each guy's toga is shorter than the guy before's. It's really kind of amazing. The one thing that I find very interesting is that... Helen Mirren is a very beautiful woman, and she was when she was younger. She was very attractive, but she's one of these cases where the older she gets, the hotter she gets, and that's like 
a, a strange case for me. You know, it's usually not that way. But yeah, every year she seems to be getting hotter and hotter. And I don't know what she's doing, but uh, she's doing something right. Oh, yeah, I completely feel like I don't know who she sold her soul to, but if I ever got to talk to her at a party, I'd find out. Yeah, because the, the Helen Mirren that's out there today, the Helen Mirren that was in like Red and Red 2, she's got the Helen Mirren that was in Caligula beat hands down. Even when she's doing the pregnant dance and, you know, strutting her stuff and everything, it's just like, yeah, give me give me the older Helen Mirren. I'll take her any day. And now I really want to go back and watch The Cook, The Thief, His Wife, and Her Lover again. It's been, I haven't seen it since it was out at theater, so I, I want to check that one out and see if that's like the mid-range Helen Mirren and how she compares to the older and the younger. Pierre-Nico Salinas uh, describes having a conversation with Tinto Brass after he had auditioned Helen Mirren for uh, for that role and said, oh, so how was she? And Tinto Brass said, well, she's got the best pits in London. All right. And well, building up his own legend. You'd have to go back a few years before to uh, Oh Lucky Man and see uh, how she was, uh, I guess, a few years younger. Not all dolled up in Roman finery. She, she was actually quite cute in our looking man, which is, is not re- really the way I think of her in anything. I mean, she's a fantastic actress. She has a tremendous amount of range. And I, I can watch her in pretty much anything. And she's good in our looking man. But she didn't stand out for me in that, the way she does in virtually everything else she's done. Yeah, I want to go back. I want to see Savage Messiah. That's one of the, the Ken Russell films I haven't seen. And then um, I might have to check out calendar girls again just saying have some friends over i mean it's <laughs> it, it just so twee have to say but it's got moments what's that calendar girls or savage mm-hmm. messiah calendar no it, i would only want to watch calendar girls alone if you know what i mean <laughs> oh well all right then we'll respect your um, non-existent privacy <laughs> this is uh, if if someone was taking bets on if we were going to be talking Caligula and the phrase twee came up, I think I would have lost that bet. But thank you. You're welcome. Always trying to do my bit. Although you know, the funny thing is, I don't think we ever re- really came down to addressing the question of so is Caligula actually a good movie? So we've gone through a lot of stuff. We've talked for almost two hours about this film. Is this something that you guys would go back to? Is this something that you would even recommend? I mean, for me, I'm kind of glad that this is over. I know that we spoke to Sanjit and uh, Alexander about this, and for them, the journey of Caligula does not end. They will continue on this for a long time. For me, I'm glad that the ride's over. How about you, Rob? Yeah, I'm glad the ride's over. As a matter of fact, I have a Blu-ray here, and if someone wants it, feel free to shoot us a, a, a tweet or something, and I'll pop it in the mail, because I don't think I'm going to watch it again. What about you, Maitland? I genuinely like Caligula, but it's a movie that I couldn't recommend to most people. I think it is spectacularly good in in many places. And then, then of course, you have all the Bob Guccione lesbian porn scenes that are just, they are dead weight, like nobody's business. On the other hand, there might be people who would enjoy watching Caligula just for that and could fast forward past the people getting their dicks cut off and... Uh, the, the incredible circus of atrocities that's staged for Tiberius. Uh, so it depends. But I do think that it actually does, in a number of places, achieve what Tinto Brass wanted to do. I mean, he said he wanted to make this movie, a movie about the orgy of power, and then followed that up by saying, but of course what Bob Cusione wanted was a movie about the power of orgies. Yeah, I guess I'll, I'll go back a little bit on my statement. If... 
Alexander or someone finally gets a fully edited version of this film that is as brass wanted it to be, I would give it another shot. I'm hoping that it wouldn't be two and a half hours, maybe a little bit shorter, but I, I'm car crash curious about what that original film would have been because I can only imagine that it's got to be better than any of the versions that we've ended up with so far. I'll second that. I would, I would rewatch it that way. As I said, that I don't know if I'll watch it again. I mean, I'll probably stumble upon it again, or if I still have the DVD Blu-ray around, I'll probably watch it. You know, ten years or whatever. But to me, the reason why I I I enjoyed it as a curiosity and what kind of kept my attention was the fact that it is Malcolm McDowell and the fact that. I am such a huge fan of Clockwork Orange. I think if it was any other actor who I didn't feel that interest in because of his previous work, I don't know if I'd be as interested in wanting to see it. Well, of course, what I really want to see is the movie that was never made, which was Lena Verrett Mueller's Caligula. Uh, Bob Gutierrez actually talked to her about directing it, and she was very excited, and she went and worked up some ideas. And uh, the next time they met, she said, you know, I think this could really work. Lena Vertmuller's Caligula. And he said, no, it's Bob Guccione's Caligula. That was, I think, the answer to a lot of things. <laughs> it's Bob Guccione's Caligula. So they parted ways. Sounds like Bob Guccione thought of himself as David O. Selznick. <laughs> Got to put David O. Selznick or Alexander Korda <laughs> above the title of the film. And we all know what the O stood for when David O. Selznick. Oh, come on. Give the punchline. Nothing. Stood for nothing. <laughs> he was Irish. <laughs> like Shaquille O'Neal? Exactly. Wow. Like Barack Obama. Like that good Irish fella, Kwame Kilpatrick. That's right. Exactly. Got it. Yes. You got it. <laughs> okay, we're going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show. Everyone knows the glorious story of the child born in a faraway manger. Well, this isn't that story. <laughs> this is Monty Python's all-new Life of Brian. He was born into the golden age of Roman rule. Do we have any crucifixions today? 139, sir. Special celebration. It was a time of miracles. I was blind, and now I can see. Friendly persuasion and gracious invaders. But there was just one thing on everyone's mind. Sex, 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 that's all they think about her. In those days, getting stoned wasn't against the law. It was the law. Things looked bad for the people of Jerusalem. Still a few crosses left. Until Brian dropped in. He was a born leader. Brothers, brothers, we should be struggling together. We are. A potential martyr. What would they do to me? Oh, you'll probably get away with crucifixion. Crucifixion? Yeah. First offense. And his mother's joy. You mean telling them? They think I'm the Messiah, Mum. The Messiah! There's no Messiah in here! There's a mess, all right, but no Messiah! And now, it's up to Brian to deliver a despairing nation from the throes of oppression. <laughs> Tough luck, Jerusalem. 
This is the life of Brian. Just when you thought you were saved. It's Monty Python's Life of Brian. He wasn't the Messiah. He was a very naughty boy. That's right, we continue down the path of films related to ancient Rome and find out that they have absolutely no sense of humor next week when we dive into the controversial comedy Monty Python's Life of Brian. Don't miss it. Before we go, we want to thank this week's special guests, Ranjit Sandhu and Alexander Tushinsky, for coming on the show. You can find out more about their work over at our website, projection-booth.com. I also want to thank this week's special guest co-host, Maitland McDonough, for coming on the show. The last time we talked, it was about Dario Argento. We had you on for our Deep Red and the Bird with the Crystal Plumage episodes. So what is the latest with you? The latest with me is that I am about to republish a pair of uh, vintage gay erotic novels under the imprint 120 Days Books, and I certainly hope that they will be the beginning of a long series of reprints. I'm a collector of uh, gay porn novels from the late 60s through the early 80s. And, you know, a lot of them are way, way better than you would think. There are a lot of really, really good genre stories in those books with a lot of sex, which I don't think is a minus. So that's what I'm doing now. I remember you brought up uh, this last time you were just starting this process and you were talking about, what was it, like a, a secret agent, sort of a James Bond kind of thing, wasn't one of them? Actually, although one, uh, one of his colleagues refers to him as the faggot James Bond, He's actually an agent to the United Nations Crime Control Commission, which is multi-jurisdictional and uh, therefore particularly suited to investigating murders that take place across national lines in Europe. And that's what he's doing. He's investigating the case of a murderer who is dubbed the man-eater because he has a pair of steel teeth, just like Francis Dollarhide. And want to take a guess at what he bites off? <laughs> I have one guess. Earlobes. <laughs> oh, sorry. You get the killing machine now. <laughs> oh, did I not tell you? This is a very high-stakes guess. So. But, uh, Rats. Maneater is a genuinely good thriller and a genuinely good psychological character study. And pretty good porn, too. So... There you go. I, I don't think most people would say all three things of Caligula, so, but I say them a man-eater. And it's paired with a book called Night of the Sadist, which is what you would get if you took one of those Agatha Christie, like cozy, closed community murder stories where you have five suspects and it has to be one of them and yet it doesn't appear to be any of them, and then set it in the uh, San Francisco S&M underworld of 1970. It's entertaining. That sounds right up my alley. So is there a gay Bob Guccione around that would like to produce these as films? <laughs> if you meet him, by all means, give him my number. Uh, Manny actually would make a terrific movie. Night of the Sadist, not so much, I think. But um, Manny, it's a genuinely well-written, well-plotted, well-characterized book. With a lot of porn. So when are those going to be available? They will be available uh, in the middle of August. Oh, perfect. 
Perfect timing so there you go. for all of our perverted listeners to go check out. Exactly. Exactly. It'll be a, a perfect storm of perverted interests. <laughs> During this month of Roman film. Absolutely. So where can people pick those up? Amazon, CreateSpace, and uh, who knows where else. I will be trying to get it any place I can. Oh, that sounded terrible, didn't it? (laughs) See, you talk about this stuff long enough and everything you say sounds smutty. Exactly. Is there a website or anything where uh, people can find out more about your work or these books? Yes. It's 120 Days Books. Now, is that um, 120 Days 120, or is it all spelled out? It's 120, and uh, it's, of course, named after the Marquis de Sade's 120 Days of Sodom. But cause how could I resist? Also a favorite around here at the projection booth. See, it's all coming together. It's all connected. Yeah, because Salo is children's fair. We always uh, invite people to watch that with their kids. It's a good bonding film. Well, there you go. Hey, Tinto Brass brought his wife and kids onto the set of Caligula, and apparently Bob Bucciani was horrified. Those Europeans. Those wacky Europeans. Yeah. (laughs) All right. Well, thanks again, Maitland, for coming on the show, and you can find links to all of her work and other connections to this week's film at projection-booth.com. And you can also find a link over there to our iTunes page where you can leave us a review and some stars as we work to take over the known world, podcastically speaking, of course. Oh, my God.
existed from the morning of the world, and I shall exist until the last star falls from the night. Although I have taken the form of Caius Caligula, I am all men as I am no man, and therefore I am a god. the road.
So the pictures that you saw of me at Red Lobster were doctors. Purple crown prints with the roster of Bon Vivant. Yeah. If it's not mixed with Evian, you're sipping a non-event. You get your socks drenched, not to mention you're not senseless. When you see me step out of the bends and syrupy top tens. To tell you I ain't gotta talk shit no more. Right? It's redundant when I'm stepping out of the slick four door. And yeah, if it looks familiar... What? It's cause that's the same shit that Gordon Gecko pushed in Wall Street. So bring me the robe. It's like, what does Caligula say? Bring me the robe. It's like, bring me the robe. Yo, son, what does Demetrius say? Bring me the robe. It's like, bring me the robe. Yo, son, what does Caligula say? Bring me the robe. It's like, bring me the robe. Bring me the robe. Let's. Go. In 97P, riddle Bob Schultz pager and like Caligula Jones out for the robe. I'm glad he gated it. Bring me the robe. I'm a locally known rapper and I want to go to the rodeo wearing naught but a robe. Yeah. We flip switches with the same novelty foam fingers that we used to snap training bras back when we was in the basement with Genesis. But now I'm lamping in Logan yeah. with my own NBA jam machine and unlimited tokens. The pictures that you saw of me at Red Lobster, Photoshop. They splashed my grill on Isaiah Thomas's body. You want to hop the fence when you see me stocking the bends with my hard rock friends and pure-blooded Austrian princes. Cause I ain't gotta talk shit no more. No. All that bullshit can sit inside of the junk drawer with wedding rings, the blood money, the stolen remote controls, and black curly fur. What? Bring me the robe. What does Caligula say? Bring me the robe. It's like, bring me the robe. Yo, son, what does Demetrius say? Bring me the robe. Bring me the robe. What does Caligula say? Bring me the robe. Bring me the robe. Bring me the robe. Bring me the robe. Yeah. What do you find out about the robe? The robe. Yes, the robe. Doc Waffles. I want the robe. And I want it today. I do my best, sire. It may take more than one from day. I didn't ask you for excuses.
Longinus, my financial wizard, we have a question for you. Who are the richest men in Rome? Who? Answer, the pimps. Question number two. Who are the most lascivious sluts in all of Rome? Who? Answer, the senator's wives. Sir? An imperial brothel. A most logical way to balance the state budget. <laughs> 